Sunday, it's 7, and it's such a pleasure to welcome you to the big broadcast, Radio Theater from WAMU 88.5. Hi, everybody. I'm Murray Horwitz, and tonight, we're not only going to call attention to our competition, we're going to honor it. The telecast of Broadway's 2022 Tony Awards. Some of our offerings relate to the nominated shows this year, like Take Me Out and Mr. Saturday Night with The Milton Berle Show, and the revival of The Music Man, with that spectacular series that nearly always saluted Broadway, The Big Show. It features a boatload of Tony winners. Plus The Shadow, Gunsmoke, Lum and Abner, Dragnet, and in our continuing series of programs aimed at young people, Dick Tracy. The curtain's going up. Sorry, I had to. So settle back, forget about last week's problems, put aside worrying about next week, and instead, let your imagination do the work here on your Sunday Night Oasis, The Big Broadcast. I often wonder where the writers of radio dramas get the names of the hundreds of characters they have to create over the course of a long series. Toward the beginning of this next adventure, you'll hear the name Jake Beckley. That rang a bell, so I looked it up, and I was reminded that it's the same name as that of a Hall of Fame baseball player from the 19th and early 20th centuries. And speaking of names, there's another character in this show named Leona, and she's portrayed by Terry Keene. Well, we have reason to believe that Miss Keene will be listening to this broadcast at age 95. So, Ms. Keene, welcome to the big broadcast in more ways than one. And thanks for sharing your talents with us in an episode called The Gold Rush Matter. It comes from August 26th, 1962, CBS and the series Yours Truly, Johnny Dollar. Johnny Dollar. Paul Keller, Johnny. Hi, Paul. Welcome to San Francisco. Unpack your bags yet? Just about to. Well, don't. Hop over to Virginia City, Nevada. Wait a minute, Paul. I just got here. Virginia City, the ghost town that's no longer a ghost over on the other side of Reno. Our man there's Jake Walton. What's the problem? The gold rush. That was a hundred years ago. Yeah, there's a new one right now. You're kidding. And with all the same problems, including a couple of murders. So fly over there and see Jake Walton. All right. The CBS Radio Network brings you Mandel Kramer and the exciting adventures of the man with the action-packed expense account. America's fabulous freelance insurance investigator, yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Expense account submitted by Special Investigator Johnny Dollar to Greater Southwest Insurance Company, Home Office, San Francisco, California. Following is an account of expenses incurred during my investigation of the gold rush matter. Expense account item one, $216 even for the flight to San Francisco and the hotel room. Item two, $1815 for a plane to the busy, noisy town of Reno. 
one of the gambling and divorce capitals of the West, as well as a business center for the mining and cattle industries. Item three, 50 bucks deposit on a rental car. And with the afternoon sun at my back, I drove south and east to Virginia City. Virginia City, colorful, fabulous monument to the rip-roaring days of the famous Comstock Lode, when a man's life all too often depended on how fast he could draw, on how well he could defend a rocky piece of desert land that he hoped would stretch out a vein worth millions of dollars in gold-bearing quartz or the heavy blue mud that was rich in silver. A lot of the old landmarks are still there for the tourist trade. Piper's Opera House. You pick up a key at the Bucket of Blood Saloon. The Crystal Bar. The territorial enterprise that carried the writings of Mark Twain. The gambling halls where instead of money on the tables, it was gold dust and nuggets. And on dark nights, I've been told, you can see the ghosts of the Bonanza Kings pacing the streets. Fair, Flood, and O'Brien. Mills, Gould, and McKay. A grizzled old character sitting on a rocker in front of the bucket of blood didn't even look up when I asked him directions. Well, son, Jake Walton's office is right there across the street, other side of the newspaper. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes, I see it now. Thank you very much. But he ain't there. Oh, I see. Um, you don't happen to know where I can find him, do you? Oh, I know where he is, all right. But uh, I wouldn't go there, son. Not if I was you. Why not? Well, him and the sheriff, they're out to the Scarlet Queen. That's a gold mine. The Scarlet Queen? Yeah, about halfway up to Six Mile Canyon over there. Mm-hmm. There's an old wagon track up to the pass. Well, can I navigate that wagon road in my car? Uh, that's a pretty new car you got there. Real pretty. No, sir. Take a horse or a burro unless you got four-wheel drive. Where can I get a hold of a horse? Jake Blakely's stable down the end of the street. But, uh, don't you go to that mine. Why not? Well, there's been another killing out there, like there's going to be more of them. More dynamite accidents. Like the one that, uh, done this to me. Did what to you? Huh. Didn't notice, eh? I'm blind. At Judd Blakely's stable, after a lot of argument that I should stay away from the Scarlet Queen, I finally got hold of a horse by forking over a $200 deposit. Then I headed up into Six Mile Canyon. A couple of miles later, I found the old wagon road to the mine. It was crooked and steep, and there was a narrow pass to go through at the top. But from the pass, when I let the horse stop there for a breather, I could see the mine below me. There were two or three weather-beaten shacks right next to a platform with tracks on it that led into a hole in the sheer face of a cliff. A couple of jeeps and a beat-up old high-wheeled truck stood in front of the line of shacks. And a group of men were hauling a body out of an ore car to load it onto a truck. I got off the horse and over behind a big boulder and nothing fled. Gunshot and come from my left and we're still coming and from someplace and somebody I couldn't see. The next one, the horse took off. Say, I felt a little alone, a little helpless at that moment. It's the understatement of the week. With a twig of mesquite, I raised my hat above the protection of the boulder, hoping to draw another shot to get a better idea where to start shooting myself. Nothing happened. Slowly, cautiously, then I worked around to the far edge of the boulder and carefully looked around the edge of it. Holy... That was in back of me. Don't move, stranger. What? You swing that gun of yours around this way and you're going to be real dead. Well. Mister, 
You drop that little lemon squeezer you got in your hand. Then up on your feet and turn around and face that rock. All right. Why not? Go on. Turn around. Face up to that rock with your feet apart. You put your hands up on it. You have the gun. Higher. Get those hands up higher. You make one move, I pull this trigger. You're the boss. You're darn right I am. Okay, Jake. Jake? Looks like you got him, Leona. It's a city man. Told you it wasn't nobody from around the Comstock. Looks like you're right, Leona. So watch him, Jake, huh? Real careful. He may be a tricky one. You got a good point there, Leona. So's just to make sure he don't try any tricks. Jake, start to throw that punch, and when you know it's coming in from where you roll, the punch and I rolled, and I turned and took him with me, and together we rolled on the ground. I grabbed for the legs of the girl, and she came with me. Then I managed to grab a wrist, a handful of long hair with the man's head under my arm with all the pressure I could put on it. No, stop. I give up. Wait, Mr. Okay, okay, okay. Uh, Please, I give up. Me too. Okay. All right, now, I've got the rifle. Now, don't worry, mister. Don't worry. And you got a lot of muscle for a city man. You now. Yes, sir. Pick up that handgun of mine by the barrel with your fingers and bring it over here. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. it says, Jake. Yeah, yeah, okay. By the barrel now and be careful. Here. Here on, Mr. Here. Jake, huh? Yes, sir. Jake Walton. What? And this here is Miss... Jake Walton of Greater Southwest Insurance? Yes, sir. <laughs> Me and Miss Leona, we was only up here account of this last accident of the mine. Oh, no. And when we see you prowling around up here, we... Oh, huh? You mind telling us what you think is so gall funny? Well, I'm sorry, ma'am. Look, my name is Johnny Dollar. Dollar? Well, well Leona, listen. Dollar, here's a man I've been waiting for. I don't care what... Oh, he is? I must say, uh, he certainly gave me a nice reception. Well, we didn't know. We thought you were the ones been making all this trouble up here. Oh, you did, hmm? Yeah, that's a fact, Johnny. And listen, this one today makes the second killing... There at the mine. Somebody's using dynamite at the wrong place in the wrong time. And, Johnny, it was one of those blasts that blew my Uncle Dave out of the shaft, and he's blind now on account of it. The blind man that I met in Virginia City in front of the bucket of blood? Yes, sir, Johnny. Dave Halver. That's what brought me here, Johnny, from off my dad's ranch to see if I could help him and help find out who's doing all of this. And when Jake and I heard the shots up here, who were you shooting at, Johnny? Hmm? Oh, um... Just a couple of rattlesnakes I saw. Uh, this time of year? Mm-hmm. Oh, to think I almost aimed the rifle at your head because of what I thought you were. Oh, I'm glad you didn't. Yeah, so am I, Johnny. This gal can shoot the eye out of a gnat. Would have killed you, sure. And I guess nobody would have blamed her much, either. Knowing what's been going on and not realizing who you were, I was hoping she would hit you. That would have been terrible. Yes, you would. Now, tell me just exactly what's been going on around here, Jake. Yeah, well, look, I see the sheriff's leaving with Jerry's body now. So let's go down there to the mine, and uh, I'll show you. All right, let's go. The Scarlet Queen, named after a shady lady of the 60s, the 1860s was a small but very old mine away from the main body of the Comstock Lode that once considered a fairly profitable maverick offshoot of it. Now, watch your step, Johnny. There's a big vertical hole along here, and if you ever fell into it, 
down. Later, Leona. three of them, about who'd taken those pot shots at me out there at the pass just before Jake and Leona appeared on the scene. The shots had come from my left, the side nearest Virginia City, and that other tunnel Jake had mentioned, originally entering the mine where the dynamite had been set, but now timbered off. Or was it really? That, too, was on the left, the Virginia City side. And more important, so was the shortcut. Yes, and using that shortcut this afternoon, somebody who'd seen me there in town could easily have beat me to the pass and been waiting for me. But who? And did Jake and Leona have some reason for not taking me down to the mine while the sheriff was still there? Uh, best darn apple pie you ever made, Martha. Well, thank you, Jake. Have some more, Mr. Dollar? No, no, thank you. I've, I've had plenty, but it was great. <laughs> well, then you men just run along and I'll wash up the dishes. Didn't you say you had to meet with somebody tonight, Jake? Oh, just uh, some of the boys over the Delta. Uh, if I can have the keys to your Jeep then, Jake. Oh, sure. Yeah. But wouldn't you rather use my sedan? After all, with a pretty girl like that, eh? Well, let's... Let's say the Jeep is more romantic. Item four, 680 for a powerful electric lantern and a small flashlight, just in case. Then I took off in the Jeep. Just out of the north end of town, I heard shots off in the distance. But who would be using a gun this time of night? I took the shortcut to the Scarlet Queen this time, and there I found the entrance to the side tunnel cleverly hidden under a pile of discarded roofing. And that slanting shaft was perfectly clear as far as I could see in it. I went around to the main entrance, into the tunnel there, down the ladder to the second level, and this time I looked at those heavy shoring timbers carefully. Yes, in one spot where the side tunnel would be, instead of a 12 by 12, was a little square of 1 by 12, on a hinge... A door where somebody could throw in a stick of dynamite and kill whoever was working in there. I hung the lantern from the ceiling. Then I heard it. Somebody was coming down that side tunnel. I touched the lantern to make it swing, to look as though I were there and moving around. Then quietly I ran back and up the ladder, but as I reached the upper level... Did it get him? Can't see yet. Not until the dust clears down here, but must have got him. Then come on. Let's get back to town. Let somebody find him there in the morning. Leona and the old man. That's all I need to know. So. You will have a beer? Nope. 
Come on, Jake. We have a job to do. A job? You borrow a length of rope and a gun from somebody? Got a piece of rope in the back of my car. And also a 30-30. All right, then. Come on. have to see for yourself, Jake. Just be sure you do exactly as I say. Okay, Johnny, okay. Keep the engine idling to cover any sounds you might make. Right. drop around tonight. Well, come in. Uh, who is it, Leona? A friend of mine. Johnny Dollar, Uncle Dave. Well, well, well. Uh, how are you, Mr. Dollar? Why, you're the young fellow I asked me directions this afternoon. I can tell by the uh, voice. That's right. I'll uh, go in the kitchen and fix up a drink. Sit down, Johnny. Make yourself comfortable. Yeah, sure, boy. Sit down. And what do you think of this lively little, little town of ours now, eh? Nothing but in front of tourists these casually, days, but... As though I was simply going to tour the mind, with it and move it from one pocket to another, again. I drew out my thirty-eight. And as I did, he slowly, almost well, imperceptibly, started moving his hand sure, toward a drawer in the table he was sitting like beside. Was, was Nor did he raise his you head know, Johnny, you do what I said and stay away from the Scarlet Queen mine this afternoon. No, I went on up there, Mr. Halvern. You did, huh? Shouldn't I? Because of what you said. Oh? About your blindness. Yeah? Yes. But a minute before you told me about it, you noticed I was driving a brand new car because you saw that I was. And that's what told me the blind act as a phony to back up your tale that you were dynamited at the mine you wanted for yourself by Hooker Crook. And your next victim would have been Skeet Lambert, the owner. Yeah? Don't reach for that drawer. Okay. Okay. Dollar. He doesn't need to, Johnny. Don't move. He doesn't, hmm? No. Because I got this one. And me, Leona? Chet. Well, this gun's aimed straight at your head. Then it's you, are. Oh, my hand! You broke my hand! Sorry, Leona, you should have known better. Jake, you want to come inside and call the sheriff? I don't know whether Leona was actually involved in the murders in the mine or not. I hope not, because she was a doll. Then, sometimes, they're the most dangerous kind. Anyhow, it'll be up to the courts again to figure it out. Expense account total, including the way back home to Hartford. Call it $700 even. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar is written by Jack Johnstone. Produced and directed by Fred Hendrickson. Johnny Dollar is played by Mandel Kramer. Also featured in our cast were Cliff Owen, Reynold Osborne, 
Terry Keene, Leon Janney, Rosemary Rice, and Sam Raskin. Music supervision by Gene Sines. Sound patterns by Walter Otto. Technical direction, Michael Shoskis. Be sure to join us next week, same time, same station, for another exciting story of yours truly, Johnny Dollar. This is Stuart Met speaking. The Gold Rush Matter, with Terry Keene as Leona, from yours truly, Johnny Dollar, in the summer of 1962, and from the big broadcast on WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. We're going to pay tribute to the American theater throughout this evening, and one of the Tony-nominated musicals this year is Mr. Saturday Night. It stars Billy Crystal, and it's a valentine to what the comedian Lenny Bruce called old showbiz. Among the comic forebears mentioned in the show is Milton Berle, who's so inextricable from the history of early TV that we often forget his extensive work in radio. Among the Tony-nominated plays this year is the revival of Richard Greenberg's Take Me Out, set in the world of baseball. Well, happily, we can pay tribute to both of those stage works with excerpts from one of Milton Berle's radio shows from 1948, just about the time he was making his mark in the new video medium. Mr. Burrell makes jokes about the fifth-place finish that year of the New York baseball giants and about their combative manager, Leo DeRocher. And there are other references to the old song, Asleep in the Deep, President Harry Truman's problems with the Republican-led Congress, two brands of razor blades, Jem and Gillette, the swashbuckling actor Errol Flynn, and the cancellation of the controversial radio giveaway show, Pot of Gold. So, in honor of baseball, comedians, and the Tony Awards, here's part of the October 6th, 1948 edition of ABC's Texaco Star Theater, featuring Milton Burrow. Your Texaco dealer, the best friend your car ever had, presents the Milton Burrow Show. Milton Burroughs Show, with Arnold Stang, Kirk Kelton, Jack Albertson, Charlie Irving, Johnny Gibson, our singing star, Kay Armand, the music of Alan Ross, and yours truly, Frank Gallup. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, this week the baseball season was opened as President Truman threw out the first ball. That's right. We now present a foul borough Texaco would like to throw out. <laughs> and here he is, Milton Burroughs. Let's not make too much noise, please. You're liable to wake up the New York Giants. <laughs> ah, baseball. I love it. I really love it. E even when I was a small kid, the big boys let me play baseball with them. They had to. My stomach was first base. <laughs> Leo DeRocha, he is back in good shape again. He just recovered from a serious operation. He had an umpire's nose removed from his mouth. Lito, I have no favorite New York ball team. Today I saw the Dodgers and the Giants game. The, you saw it too? I just enjoyed myself, that's all. I, I was just like watching my mother-in-law and my landlord trying to knock each other's brains out. <laughs> I wish them both good luck. 
What an impressive ceremony in Washington when President Truman officially opened the season. How Harry rooted and cheered for the senators. But it did him no good. He still can't get Congress to play ball with him. <laughs> I, uh... Do... Oh, but my mother, my mother loves baseball. She, she's at every game, shouting all the time. Sometimes she gets so excited, she forgets what she's selling. <laughs> After all, somebody's got to sell the peanuts that I worked for. <laughs> Where's Mr. Gallup? Oh, Mr. Gallup, Mr. Gallup. What is it, Bill? Well, Bill. <laughs> sounds like the second chorus of A Sleep in the Deep Just Before the Baritone Blows a Gasket. Uh, come on, Mr. Gallup. Now, join the program. The audience missed you. That's what I'm afraid of. What's that? They'll miss you and hit me. <laughs> isn't, isn't, isn't that sweet of Mr. Gallup? Isn't it? You know, he, he carried that egg around since Easter just to lay it here tonight. <laughs> you just... Fine, keep it going. <laughs> There's scattered applause tonight, you know. <laughs> No individual laughing tonight. You just don't... You just don't appreciate me, Mr. Gallup. What's the difference, Mr. Gallup, between my jokes and the other radio comedian's jokes? About 24 hours. <laughs> oh, Mr. Gallup, you're a gem. Really? You're a gem, and your nose looks more like a Gillette. Get a load of that beak. The last time I saw a nose like that, it was fencing with Errol Flynn. I, I, Mr. Gallup, I, I don't mean... To, to insult you. You know that, don't you? I mean, I'm just trying to encourage you just to put some weight on. Put some weight on. Look at me. Well, that explains one mystery. One mystery? What's that? When they took the pot of gold off the air, I know who got the pot. Yeah. <laughs> don't. Now, please. Oh, you clever, clever boy. <laughs> boy, I keep calling him. Gallup remembers the Yankees when they had a dinosaur playing second base. Milton Berle, Cracking Wise, in an excerpt of the Texaco Star Theater from the day the World Series started in 1948. It's the big broadcast from WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. Every other week, we've been offering radio shows that were popular with young people back in the day, and tonight we're going to hear one of the most popular, Dick Tracy. He was a comic strip police detective in the newspapers, and on the radio, his show ran for a dozen years. By 1946, the time of the adventure we're about to hear, his friends included the ex-actor Vitamin Flintheart and his wife Snowflake Flintheart. They'd replaced more familiar characters like Pat Patton and Tess Trueheart. Dick Tracy is one of those shows that doesn't talk down to young people. It does advertise Tootsie Rolls, but it's got grown-up themes and a story that you really have to pay attention to to follow. From February 16, 1946, a year and a half after the end of World War II, when chocolate was not easy to come by, it's The Case of the Firebug Murders from Dick Tracy. America's best-known candy presents America's best-known detective... Just a moment, just 
Just a moment, old boy. What is all this? Why, this is the new Dick Tracy show. Dick Tracy, America's favorite detective. Right you are, presented by Tootsie Rolls, that favorite American candy. Dead man, Dick Tracy. And Tootsie Rolls, too. That sounds exciting. It is, Mr. Flintheart. It is. Well, then, let's get on with it. Tonight's story, The Case of the Firebug Murders. Our story begins in a warehouse at about one o'clock in the morning. Come on, come on. How long does it take us? Take it easy, Gimmick. I'm an artist at this kind of thing. I like it to go right. Hand me that box of specially treated magnesium shavings, will you? Okay, okay. Here, open. Now, look what you've done. You've spilled the stuff all over. Well, what difference does it make? It'll burn that way, too, won't it? I like things neat and tidy. Neat and tidy. I think you're nuts. That's what I like about fire. It burns clean. Clean. Yeah, well, we'll cut out the big act and light the stuff and let's slam out of here. Now, suppose the cops come... Ah, the cops. Yes, they don't understand. If they did... Hotfoot, hotfoot, light that fire and let's go. This empty warehouse gives me the creeps. I don't like it, I tell you. Everything's ready now, Gimmick. Hand me a match. Yeah, yeah, here. Thanks. Now. There. The little candle is lit. It'll take about an hour to burn down to the magnesium shavings, giving us plenty of time to get away from here with a perfect alibi. And then the magnesium scraps will burn. Come on, Hotfoot, let's go. Burn very fast, very hot. Then this big warehouse will go up, up in flames. The firemen will come, but they'll not be able to stop it. Not when Hotfoot sets it. Peter, come on. Look at that little flame. Soon it'll be a bigger flame. And a bigger flame. And then it'll be a great big fire. I walked out onto the center of the stage and called to the stage manager. I said to him, me good man, I know the line. What is the name of the play we are doing? Vitamin. Uh, Yes, my love? Tracy is asleep, dear. Asleep? (laughs) Gab, do you mean to say that I've been telling that story to myself all this time? You didn't seem to mind, darling. Uh, Oh, yes, I didn't, did I? Uh, What? (laughs) Tracy, old man, wake up. Wake up. Uh, 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 what's up? You, Tracy. You've been asleep. Oh, oh I'm sorry. What time is it? Uh, half after two, old man. Oh, good heavens. I've got an early conference with the fire commissioner in the morning. I've got to run. Um, may I have my coat and hat vitamin? Of course, old man. I'll get it for you. <sighs> well, I had a nice time at your party, Snowflake. Oh, even if you did fall asleep. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, Snowflake. But that series of fires we've been having in the city lately has kept me going day and night. You see, we suspect there are more than accidents. Here's your hat and coat, old fellow. Oh, thanks, Vitamin. Well, uh, you're a wonderful cook, Snowflake. (laughs) Well, thanks again for asking me over to dinner. Good night. Oh, the telephone. Pardon me. It is the Flintheart apartment. Flintheart speaking. Hi, Flint. Let me speak to Tracy, will you? Why, Gravel Gertie. Who'd you think it was, Greer Gertie? 
Why, yes, he is Gertie. Hold on, I'll get him. It's for you, old man. Gravel Gertie. Here. Oh, thanks, Vitamin. Hello, Gertie. Look, Tracy, I've been trying to call you ever since the big fire started. Big but fire? I... Where? Over here on River Street, 101. Where all those warehouses is. Well, how long has it been burning? About a half hour, Tracy. It looks pretty bad. I've got an idea. Everything ain't strictly on the up and up, see? You see, I'm worried that my junkyard will burn up and it's... Well, don't tell me about it over the phone. I'll be right over. I know there have been a great many fires down in the warehouse district, old man. But what makes you suspect foul play? Fires like that don't just happen, Vitamin. There's some reason behind all this. Did you hear that, Tracy? We must be getting close. Look at the sky up ahead, Vitamin. Gad hadn't noticed. The fire makes it as bright as midday. Vitamin, six people have died since those fires started. I'd like to get my hands on the one who's causing them. Oh, I see, old man. Isn't that a woman standing in the middle of the street just ahead up there? Oh, yes. It, why, it's uh, Gravel Gertie. Stop the car, Vitamin. Gertie. Gravel Gertie. Is that you, Tracy? I've been waiting here for you. Oh, what is it, Gertie? I think I got an idea about why them fires are being started, Tracy. You have? Yeah. You see that shack? Well, that's mine. And you see that yard piled high with scraps and junk? Well, that's also mine. Just read that there sign up there, will you? Gravel Gertie, dealer in junk and factory scraps. I buy and sell anything. You're in business? Yeah, Tracy. And I'm doing okay, Tracy. Hmm, factory scraps and junk. What's the matter with it, Flinthead? Nothing, nothing at all, me dear woman. Then shut up. And stop making with the raised eyebrow department. Well, what did you want to tell me, Gertie? I want to get over to the fire. Well, this. Some guy wants to get this here place away from me. I can't understand why. Look, Flint Brain, I told you before to shut up. Now you're going to do it, or will I have to give you a hit in the head? Sorry. Well, come on, Gertie. Tell us the story. Well, this here guy comes around about a month ago when he asked me if I want to sell my lease. He wants to buy up the property around here, see? Go on. I tell him I ain't interested. And then he gets sore. Yes? First, he offers more money. Then he starts making with the threats. Well, what did he say? Like what? Like he was going to have this here piece of property or else that he needed it. Also, he says he needs some other property along the river here where the warehouses is, and he's going to get hold of that, too. That he had ways to get it. I see. What's his name? Oh, wait now. I've got his card here. Yeah, I got it in my pocket. Now, let me see. Oh, yeah. Here it is. J.P. Doom. Real estate, 209 River Street. Why, that's only a block or two from here. J.P. Doom. I know that name. I don't quite follow all this, old man. Do you suspect this doomed person of setting the fire? I don't know yet, Vitamin. There's that possibility. He's a shady character, mixed up in politics. What could he hope to gain by getting this property, old sleuth? Boy, Flint, top of you, Jen. Look, there's been so many fires around this here neighborhood, you can't get insurance no more. Property owners are getting scared, so they sell out at this guy Doom's price. So he gets what he wants. And what he wants is that river property. You know, Vitamin, there's a rumor afoot that the city is going to put the new superhighway through here. Well, in that case, Doom will be able to name his own price and get it. Are you going to the fire now, Tracy? No, Gertie. We're going to investigate the office of J.P. Doom. Come away from that window, Hartford. Stop watching that fire. Not watching? 
It's beautiful. Beautiful. And it's mine. I made it. <laughs> you know, Doom, I think he enjoys watching them fires we make more than the money you pay us to make them. Listen, you. I don't want to hear you say that. Well, why not? It's true, ain't it? Don't say it. Suppose someone were to hear you. At three o'clock in the morning in your office? Why, there ain't nobody in this here building at this hour. Just the same, don't say it. <laughs> They'll never stop it. It'll burn and burn and burn until there's nothing left. Listen, Hartford, you should never have come back here to my office. Suppose you've been seen. Nobody ever sees me make my fires, Doom. I am an artist. The fires don't start till Gimmick and I are out of the neighborhood at least one hour. Yeah, yeah. I gotta hand that to you, Hotfoot. You got the alibi angle worked out fine. That's because I'm smart. Smart. Well, Doom, what next? What do we burn tomorrow night? Nothing. Nothing? But you... We're will... laying low for a few weeks. The police have been snooping around this district like a peck of bloodhounds. They'll never catch me I'm too clever for him. No, 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 look, Hotfoot. Uh, I think Doom's right. Take it easy for a while till the heat's on. Don't forget, Tracy's working on this case. <laughs> Tracy. I'd like to match wits with Dick Tracy. Yeah? Well, I wouldn't. Someone knocked. Yeah. How did anyone know we was here? The light's out. Not the light from my fire. It lights up the whole city. He's trying to unlock the door. Who's there? Open up in there. Go in the other office. You can slip out the other door after he comes in here. Close the door quietly. Right. Come on. All right, I'm coming. Yeah? J.P. Doom? Yeah. What do you mean by trying to break into my office? I'm Dick Tracy of the police. I thought I saw some men come in here. Thought I'd investigate. Oh. I see. Come in, Mr. Tracy. Come in. Oh, thanks. Come in, Biderman, and shut the door. Right, old oh, through. There's no one here but me, Mr. Tracy. Rather late to be at your office, Mr. Doom, isn't it? Why, well, yes, Mr. Tracy, but when I heard there was another fire down here, I came right over. Like fires, Mr. Doom? Like them? I know, Mr. Tracy. But you see, I... I own considerable property down here. And you're trying to buy more. Yeah. Anything criminal in that, Mr. Tracy? Depends on the method you use, me fine fella. Biderman. But, Tracy, Gravel Gertie said he made threat. Biderman. Let me handle this. Uh, oh, yes. Quite proceed, old man. Well, Mr. Doom, you heard what Mr. Flinthart said. I assure you, Mr. Tracy, I never threatened Gravel Gertie. I tried to purchase the lease, yes, but that's all. Well, Mr. Doom, it's your word against hers. But I'm going to get to the bottom of this whole business. Surely you don't suspect me of having anything to do with these terrible fires. I don't know, Mr. Doom. I don't know yet. But I'm going to find out. Come on, Biderman. Right behind you, Tracy, old Tracer. Oh, by the way, Doom. Yeah. Perhaps you've heard the rumor that the city is putting the new superhighway through that property you've been trying to buy up. Could that have anything to do with the fires? Yeah. Gravel Gertie, huh? Huh? Who's there? Don't get excited. 
It's that hot foot and gimmick. I thought you'd gone. Hot foot wanted to hear what Tracy had to say, so we listened. It's just as well you didn't go, boys. Oh, yeah? Remember? I said no fires for a while? Yeah. Well, that's out. I know, I know. You want to get rid of Tracy, right? Yeah. But first, we've got to get rid of Gravel Gertie. It would be a most unfortunate accident if... Her place would burn down. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> it would be most unfortunate if her place would burn down. With her in it. Um, ladies and gentlemen, this is the intermission. Let me take this opportunity to warn you of fire, warn you of the dangers of playing with matches. We must be very careful of fire. I remember... Remember me, Mr. Flintheart? Uh, oh, remember... This is my opportunity to spread the news that Tootsie Rolls are coming back on candy counters all over America. Big, nickel-sized Tootsie Rolls, fresh from the famous Tootsie Roll candy kitchen. You certainly have an enthusiastic fire in your eyes, Reddy. Sure, everybody's eyes light up when they taste those good, wholesome, delicious Tootsie Rolls. Tootsie Rolls are made with chocolate and milk and loads of other bodybuilding ingredients blended to perfection. That's why Tootsie Rolls have that delicious chocolatey flavor. Flavor that really tickles your taste. My, my, already. When I realize... Yes, yes, when you realize that three generations of Americans have bought and enjoyed Tootsie Rolls, when you realize that for more than 50 years, Tootsie Rolls have been an all-American favorite with big folks and little folks, too... When you realize... Oh, I realize, Reddy. Well, all you have to realize is that the big nickel-sized Tootsie Roll is darn good candy. You can always count on that. Folks always enjoy it. That's why the big nickel-sized Tootsie Roll is a candy treat that can't be beat. Reddy, I'm worried about those fires. I think we'd better get on with the story. Yes. Let's return to Dick Tracy and the case of the firebug murders. never done. Ain't it the truth? Now, who can that be? At this time of night, too. Well, don't get in an uproar. I'm coming. Oh, hello, Gertie. Well, snowflake. Come on in, Jerry. Come in. I wasn't expecting no visitors. You see, I was just about ready to hit the hay. Ain't this shack a mess? Gertie, have you seen Vitamin this evening? Vitamin? No. Him and Tracy was here last night, but Then they... you haven't seen him. Not tonight, I ain't. Tracy was around the neighborhood this afternoon and looking around, but uh, your husband wasn't with him. Oh, dear. Well, what's the matter, dearie? Worry? Gertie, listen. Vitamin went out after lunch to see his agent, he said. And here it is 11 o'clock at night, and I haven't heard a word from him. Now, ain't that just like a man? 
Well, what made you think he was here? He told me that he and Tracy had been here to see you last night. And you think he's with Tracy tonight, huh? I don't know, Gertie. I don't know. I tried to reach Tracy, but he wasn't at his office. Say, maybe that's them now. Just a minute, Jerry. Yeah? Hello, Gertie. Remember me? Oh, remember? How could I forget my best customer? Come in, come in. Come on in, Jimmy. Yeah. Now, what can I do for you two gents? The regular order? 15 pounds of magnesia scrap? <laughs> yeah, Gordy. Uh, that's right, huh, Hartford? No, Gimmick. Hmm? We want a double order tonight. Double? Yeah. Okay. I got at least a ton of that stuff. Bought it from that small parts factory. I was... Oh, I beg your palm. This is Mrs. Flintheart. This is two customers of mine, Hotfoot and Gimmick. How do you do? How do you do? I'll get the scraps for you. I got them back here. Did you say Flintheart? Yes. Do you know my husband? No, Mrs. Flintheart. <laughs> we don't know him, Mrs. Flintheart, but uh, <laughs> as a matter of fact, we nearly met him last night. Didn't we, Gimmick? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he was with Tracy. Oh, you haven't seen him this evening. No, lady, we ain't seen him. But we'd like to. Oh, fine, gents, you are letting a lady lug a heavy box like this without trying to help her. Oh, sorry, Gertie, here. Let Gimmick take that. Yes. Too late now. Well, there you are. 30 pounds of magnesia scrap. Now, that'll be, uh, let me see. Four goes into 15, carry the one. $6.35. Okay, Gertie. Give her the money, Gimmick. Okay. Say, uh, by the way, uh, what do you use this here stuff for? We treat this with special chemicals to set fires. Oh, sure, to set fires. Why didn't I know? What? Sure, Gertie. We set all the fires in this neighborhood. Oh, why, you dirty so-and-sos. I'm going out and call Dick Tracy on the payphone and tell him. He ain't going to go out and leave this here shack, Gertie. He's got a gun. That's right. Okay, Gimmick. Tie him up. Oh, you ain't going to get away with this when I tell Dick Tracy. You're not going to tell anyone anything again, Gertie. Because we're going to shut you up forever. Oh. Police headquarters, Tracy speaking. Oh, Tracy, old man, found you at last. I've been trying to get you for the last 20 minutes. Well, I just got back to my office, Spiderman. What is it? Snowflake's not at the apartment. What happened? She go home to mother? No, no, nothing like that. She thought I was with you and went out to find us. I've been with my theatrical agent all day. I forgot to call her and tell her. Well, she'll be home soon, Vitamin. Good night. I'm going home and get some rest. Wait a minute, Tracy. She's gone to Gravel Gertie's shack. Left me a note saying that. Gravel Gertie's? I'm worried, old man. Remember you told me last night that you were going to keep a watch on Gertie's place for fear J.P. Doom would try to get even with her for telling you... About his threats. Completely slipped my mind. I've been so busy today. Do you think there's any danger, old man? I'm afraid maybe there is, Vitamin. Oh, what shall I do, Tracy? My poor dear wife is there. Vitamin, meet me in front of your hotel in five minutes. We're going to gravel Gertie's. And I hope we won't be too late. Gertie! Gertie! Open up! There's no answer, old sleuth. Do you think she's home? Well, there seems to be some sort of light inside. I can't see anything through the window. It's too sooty. Well, stand back, Vitamin. I'm going to crack that door open. <coughs> well, I don't see... <coughs> Good heavens! Look, Tracy! Snowflake and Gertie bound and gagged. Oh, my darling little wife. Get the gags off them, Vitamin. I'll put that candle out. 
We didn't get here a minute too soon. Those magnesium scraps would have caught fire and then... Hear me, love. Now you can speak. No. Oh, vitamin. Vitamin. Oh, oh, no, 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 no. Oh, yes, take the gag out of Gertie's mouth, vitamin, darling. Oh, yes, of course, me love. There. Tracy, them rats was trying to kill us. They tied us up, then they was going to... Wait a minute, Gertie, wait a minute. Not so fast. Who tied you up and who wanted to kill you? Them two rats, hot-button gimmicks. They come in here and then they start... Then they what? Oh, Reach, Tracy. That's them, Tracy. No, don't turn around, Tracy. Just stand there and keep your hands up. That's right. Okay, gimmick. Looks like we got them all. Yeah, Doom won't have nothing to worry about now. You see, Tracy, we were waiting across the street to see whether the women would be able to escape. Then we saw you and Flintheart drive up, and uh, <laughs> we couldn't pass up that golden opportunity, could we? So it is J.P. Doom, eh? That's right, Tracy. But now you'll never be able to bother him again. Or us either. Get his gun, gimmick. Right, Hotfoot. Oh, sure, sure. Now you... He's got all of me, Hotfoot. You stop that. Oh, Oh, Tracy. Tracy, he's down. Oh, dear. Tracy thought he'd try something, did he? Okay, gimmick. Now tie them all up good. Yeah, yeah. You want the gags again? No. No gags. They can yell all they want to now. It will all be over very soon. <laughs> no one will hear them. Oh, it's Tracy, my dear. I can't see him. They have me tied to this chair, and I'm facing the other way. He's still unconscious, Vitamin. Tracy... Tracy, please wake up, Tracy. If I ever get out of this here place alive, I'm going to make them two rats rich. They were never born. The candle is rapidly running out. Or is it the sands of time? Tracy! Tracy! That there candle's getting mighty low. Close to that there magnesia. Out, out, brief candle. Life is but a walking shadow. A poor player who struts and frets his weary hour upon the stage. And then is heard no more. Ah, shut up. Ain't it bad enough to have to die? Do you have to make with a torture, too? I'm a good woman. I was hoping... Uh, Tracy, he's waking up. Oh, my head. Tracy, Tracy. Oh, where am I? We're all here in Gertie's shack. Tied up, waiting for the end, old man. What's that? In a moment, the candle will ignite the magnesium scraps, and then... Oh, I've got to get these ropes off my hands. Tracy, it's no use. We've been trying to get our own ropes off for the last 20 minutes while you were unconscious. Yeah, can't be did, Tracy. In my language, there's no such word as can't. It's impossible, old friend. Well, I certainly did a good job. We've got to get out of here before that candle burns. I've got it. Got what, old Houdini? I wonder if I can roll over to the candle. Tracy, what are you going to do? I'm going to try to burn the ropes off my hands by holding them over the candle flame. Good idea, Tracy. Careful with the candle. If it gets knocked over into them scraps, this place will go up so fast we won't know what happened. I've got to take that chance. Got it yet, old smoke eater? <laughs> there. Now. Oh, hurry, Tracy, hurry. The candle's so low. The stuff will catch fire in a minute. Come on, come on. Burn through. Burn through. The ropes have got to burn through. <laughs> Doesn't it burn? Why doesn't it burn? I thought you said the shack would burn down in about 20 minutes. What's taking so long? It will, it will. Don't be impatient. It should go up in about 30 seconds. Come over here to the back window of the office and see it happen. No, no. 
I don't want to see it. You come over here, Gimmick. Come on. It'll make quite a sight. No, I, I don't want to see it either. The candle is very short. And what a blaze it will make. The shack is full of oily waste rags and magnesium scraps. It'll be the biggest blaze I've ever set. Come away from that office window. Someone might see you. What are you so nervous about, Doom? You're getting everything just the way you want tonight. Tracy and the others out of the way. And now you're in the clear. What about my conscience? Conscience? Have you got a conscience? Oh, no, 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 no. Cut it out. This ain't no time to argue. We all got to hang together now. We're in pretty deep. Hang together? Yes. What an unpleasant way of putting it. But don't think you can get rid of us, J.P. We are going to stick around. Gosh. Gosh, look at the sky. Huh? It's all lit up. The shack's caught fire. Yes. Come on. Let's watch it from the window. Yeah. Hey, look at it burn. Well, that's the end of Dick Tracy, boys. He'll never bother us again. All right. Hey, Tracy. 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 Keep your hands up, Dole. You too, Hotfoot. Come on in, Vitamin. Right, old Priorita. Take their guns away while I keep them covered. Yes, Tracy, old man. (laughs) What are you laughing at, Hotfoot? I just remembered something, Tracy. (laughs) Something very funny. You can take your hand out of your coat pocket. You haven't got a gun. We took it away from you. Dad discovered. Now, you get your hands up, Tracy. I'm boss now. Tracy, he's got your gun. Hey, fast when he grabbed his chair. Look out. Hey, you. What's up? these boys come in contact with anything hot, it'll be the chair in the death house of the state prison. Police headquarters, Tracy speaking. Who? Roscoe Drops. Oh, yes, Mr. Drops. You're head of the Drops Trucking Company. One of your trucks hijacked. Pete Simon, the driver, murdered, eh? Well, what were you carrying? Nylons. 50,000 pairs. No. This looks serious. I'll be right over. What's this? 50,000 pairs of nylons hijacked? Black market? Tracy on the trail of desperate men who stop at nothing? A chase through the night that almost ends in disaster? Sound exciting? It's all yours for the listening. Next Saturday, same time, same station, when Tootsie Rolls, America's best-known candy, presents America's best-known detective, Dick Tracy, in the case of the hot nylon. Featuring vitamin Flint Heart, Pete Simon, Velma Coates, Horasco Drops, Bugs, and an extremely nasty character known as Sticky. Dick Tracy is based on the nationally known comic strip created by Chester Gould. Dick Tracy is written for radio by Sidney Sloan, directed by Mitchell Grayson, and is presented by the Sweets Company of America, makers of Tootsie Roll. Dick Tracy and The Case of the Firebug Murders from just after Valentine's Day in 1946 and 
from the big broadcast. I'm Murray Horwitz. Jill Arald Bailey is our co-producer. Kennedy Wright, Kenny Pirog, and Mike Kidd are the audio engineers. And this is WAMU Washington, your listener-supported NPR news station from American University. In HD at 88.5, on your smart speaker, and at WAMU.org. For some reason, the writer of tonight's Gunsmoke episode, Les Crutchfield, isn't credited in the broadcast. It's a sad omission, because he created one of the series' most repellent characters, as we're about to hear. It's an episode called Sunny Afternoon, from December 5th, 1955, CBS and Gunsmoke. Gunsmoke. Around Dodge City and in the territory on West, there's just one way to handle the killers and the spoilers, and that's with a U.S. Marshal and the smell of gun smoke. Starring William Conrad, the transcribed story of the violence that moved west with young America, and the story of a man who moved with it. I'm that man, Matt Dillon, United States Marshal. The first man they look for and the last they want to meet. It's a chancy job, and it makes a man watchful and a little lonely. was the worst winter we'd ever had in Dodge. The worst one I'd ever seen anywhere on the plains. It had been a short summer with the rain starting a month early and turning to snow and sleet before the end of September. And from then on, it was one blizzard right after another, roaring down off the flat basin, freezing the creeks and the ponds and piling up snow in the gullies. Stock suffered and men suffered. And it got so nobody in town would do anything or go anywhere unless there was some reason they just had to. It was a winter that started out cold, and it kept getting colder. One of the few places in town where a man could go to get warm was a long branch. They had a big pot-bellied stove there that would take four-foot chunk of cottonwood. Most nights they kept it red hot. Matt, you want to know a secret? Yeah, sure, Kitty. What is it? I'm in love with a man who invented woolen underwear. You? <laughs> Under that? You're darn right. Don't let the dress fool you. <laughs> <laughs> well, it can't do much good. About as big as a saddle blanket for a cotton tail. In this weather, anything helps. How about a drink, Matt? Well, I was kind of waiting around for Doc, Kitty, but I guess that baby of Miss Tucker's turning out to be pretty stubborn. The Tucker's? Another one? Uh-huh. Oh. If a man, you'd wear a gun. Well, it started out to be a quiet evening. Oh, it's Ned Crater and old man Sideroy. I think it's just a talking fight. No, Kitty, this one's due. It's been building for a week now. Oh? I'll see you later. All right. You ain't scared. Why don't you borrow a gun? 
Anybody in here alone you want, they'll be glad to see you called for once. You're yellow, Josh. You're mean, dirty, and you're yellow. All right, Crater, you've had your say now. Well, how do you feel, Marshal? How would you feel about it if you was in my place? Probably the same way you do, but this kind of talk's not going to help you any. Now, why don't you take a walk? Go have a drink somewhere else. Oh, huh? sure. While that old skinflint stands... Crater, I and... said take a walk. I'll get... All right, Marshal. That was well handled, Marshal. You join me for a drink? No, thank you. Sidrome, what makes you like you are? I don't believe I understand you. Joshua Sidrome, the meanest man in town. Do you like being thought of that way? I'm not much concerned, Marshal, one way or another. A prudent and successful man's always envy, maligned by fools like Ned Crater. That hay barn of yours is full to the roof. You got five times what you need to hold your stock through the winter. Crater's on a ragged edge. He's desperate. A couple of loads that probably carry him. And you wouldn't even miss it. Well, the hay's for sale. Oh, yeah, sure. And twice what it's worth. A thing is worth whatever you can sell it for, Marshal. He's no better than the other nesters. They're buying from me. They must got cash. It's his first year on the land. He's got no cash and no credit. You know that. Then he should have been more industrious. Shown some foresight. He was caught short by the early rains, the same as the rest of it. Now, what's the use? You know, Joshua, someday you're going to end up being the richest man on Boot Hill. Well, Ned Crater will never put me there. He might. He's worked up enough. Yeah, he's like all failures. Talks big and does small. He's a fool. And I'll be here long after he's starved to death. Dillon, the more wood you chunk into this cussed stove, the less heat it seems to give off. That's a cold morning, Chester. Throw some buffalo chips in. Yes, and burn out the grates again. If this jailhouse can't afford a halfway decent stove in weather like this. Well, forevermore. Look there. Look who's up bright and early this morning. What? Joshua's side row. Mm. Leading the pack horse. Maybe he's going to pull out, Mr. Dillon. That's wishful thinking, Chester. I wonder why he's coming here. Marshal! Marshal Dillon! Well, I guess there's only one way to get it over with. Marshal. Yeah, Joshua. I brought in the body of my son, Jabel. He was murdered during the night. took young Jabel's body up to Doc's office and he went to work on it to see what he could find out for me. Chester and I waited in the ante room and old Joshua told us what had happened. I had Jabel staying up every night this week, keeping watch on the barn, same as last night. That hay's valuable and I didn't aim to lose it. 
Uh, you didn't wake up during the night? You didn't hear anything, huh? Clear conscience makes a sound sleeper, Marshal. When Gable wasn't around this morning, I thought he must be out in the barn doing his chores. About 7.30, I went out to the barn looking for him. Lock was broke off the door. Finally, I found him laying there in the barnyard, covered with snow that fell during the night. Any uh, hay missing? No. I figured after they shot Jabel, he got scared and ran off. Matt, it's pretty hard to tell much. It was colder and blue blazes last night. The bodies froze stiff. I got the bullet, though. It was a rifle of some kind. Wasn't any six-gun. Marshal, if you have no more questions, I'll go and make arrangements for a coffin. Yeah, sure, go ahead. Uh, Joshua. Huh? I, uh, I'm sorry about your boy. I don't regard sentimentality as being a function of law. It's not sympathy I want. It's retribution. Good day. Mean, mean. That is the one meanest man I ever seen. It's too bad it kicked back on Jabelo. He was a good boy, Matt. He was warm-hearted and generous. He was nothing like that old Man. Yeah, I know, Doc. How do you figure it, Mr. Dillon? And I'm afraid there's only one way to figure it, Chester. All right, let's saddle up. We'll go out and get Crater. Ain't much sign of life, Mr. Dillon. Now there's smoke coming out of the chimney. Yeah. Well, Marshal Dillon, Chester, come in. Thank you, ma'am. Good morning, Miss Crater. Huh? I'll pour you some coffee. Uh, we're kind of pushed for time, ma'am. Is uh, is Ned here? No, it's just me and the young one. Ah. Hey, you know where he is? No, I don't, Marshal Dillon. He's been gone since last night. Hitched up the big wagon, took the four mules and his saddle horse and left. Uh, here. Oh, thank you, ma'am. Thank you. Uh, he uh, didn't tell you where he was going, huh? No, it just said he wasn't going to sit around while the stock died of starvation and, and me and the young one went hungry, no matter what it costs. He... He said if he wasn't back in five days, I was to sell out and go home to my folks. I don't understand what he meant. Well, there's no use reaching for trouble till it gets here, ma'am. Well, somebody told him yesterday about a camp of Kiowa Indians out toward Badger Crossing. I thought maybe he was going to try to find them and borrow some hay from them, maybe. But I, I don't know. And with this blizzard fixing to hit... I'm worried, Marshal. Oh, he'll probably be back by tonight, ma'am. Tomorrow morning, anyway. How's the boy? Oh, well, he's been a little croupy all week, but I, I guess in this kind of weather, you have to expect that. Sure, half the kids in Dodge have got a touch of it. Well, we better be riding on, Miss Crater. Well, I'll tell Ned you was here. Yeah, you do that, will you? And thank you very much for the coffee. Bye. Goodbye. Bye. Well... What do you think, Mr. Dillon? I don't know, Chester. Them Kiowas don't do much loaning. No, but they'll trade. He didn't get any hay at the side, Rose. You figure he went on the Badger Crossing? Well, there's only one way to find out. The storm really hit us a couple of hours out. 
blinding snow on a cold driving wind. The trail was already a foot deep and it got worse. The horses didn't like the going and kept trying to tail off to the wind. Times had got so bad we had to take shelter in a coulee and wait it out for a while. When it came dark, we hadn't made over eight or ten miles. And after all that trouble, we still come pretty close to missing it. Did you hear something, Mr. Dillon? I'm not sure, Chester, but pull up. Yeah, but whatever it was, it came from over there toward the creek bank. Sure sounded to me like... That's what it is. It's somebody yelling. Yeah, it's down that way. Come on. Over here! Over! Watch out for that bank, Chester. I see it. There he is, Mr. Dillon's wagon is down in the creek. Yeah, it's Ned Crater's rig. He's broke through the ice, bogged down. Give me a hand here. Cut those mules loose and get them out of there, Crater, before you lose them along with the wagon. Take them pull out all right. But if I leave the box here, loose the lines, they'll founder. Right into the water, Marshal. Grab the lead mule's halter and get them straight. They'll pull out. All right. That water's freezing, Mr. Dillon. Well, that's not going to get any warmer before April. Come on, Chester. All right, keep the line tight, Crater. Yeah, I know. All right, get her out there, mule. Come on. Just go straight. That's it. Hey, yeah, come on. That's it. Don't pull it. Get off you, Chester. Yes, get out of there. Ah, 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 ah. I told you they'd pull it. Ah, oh, now. Well, Marshal, what the devil are you doing clear we'll out here? We'll talk about it later. Kick some wood out from under that yeah. snow and let's get a fire going before we freeze to death. I sure wasn't aiming to lose that load of hay, Marshal. Well, you just about did in that creek. Where'd you get it, Crater? A band of Kiowas back at Badger Crossing. I traded them my saddle pony. Now, that pinto mare has a lot of horse for a load of hay. Well, what are you going to do when you ain't got choice? That argument you got into with old Joshua's side row. What started it, Crater? Well, that boy of his, young Gable... Stopped by our place a couple of days ago. Told me he'd see to it I got at least one load of hay. Then when I run into old Joshua in the Long Branch and told him about it, he just laughed. Mean old devil. He said the kid was out of his mind that he didn't have no more authority around the place than the other cow hand. You got your rifle with you? Uh, yeah, sure. I'd like to take a look at it. All right. I won't guarantee what condition it's in. I've been so plain busy, I ain't had time to do nothing right. Here, here you are. Thanks. Yeah. Where'd you claim this gun last? Well, a couple of weeks back. I told you it was in pretty bad shape. Couldn't be much worse. I wouldn't try to fire it till I got the rust out of that barrel. Marshal, what's all this about? Jabel's side row was found lying dead in the barn lot this morning been shot. So that's what you're doing out this way. Yeah, that's it, Crater. Well, Marshal, if, if you figure I killed Jabo Sidrow for this load of hay, you're wrong. 
I'd do most anything to keep my stock from starving, but not that. Not killing. I know. Then you're not arresting me? No. Well, I figured you thought that I... did I... at first, Crater. That's why we rode out to find you. But I guess you couldn't have shot him. Not with your rifle in that condition. You mean that I can go home? Yeah. And Chester and I will give you a hand with a wagon. Thanks, Marshal. Well, after we get Crater home, what are we going to do, Mr. Dillon? Have a look at a barn full of hay, Chester. Joshua's barnyard in the middle of the night. This won't take long, Chester. No, it won't take long for a man to freeze out here. Man did freeze out here. Right about here, in fact. What are you doing with that gun, Mr. Dillon? I thought we was being quiet. What are you going to shoot at? Well, the moon makes as good a target as anything. So? That made enough racket to raise it dead. I hope you're right. Hold it right where you are. I got a rifle on you. All right, calm down, Joshua. It's Matt Dillon. Marshal, what's the meaning of this? What's happened to that clear conscience of yours, Joshua? You're not sleeping as sound as you claim you were night before last. I thought somebody was after my hay. Uh, who'd you have in mind? I don't know. That's what I come out to see. Shot woke me up. It didn't night before last. The shot or the dogs. None of it woke you up. Well, what happens once don't have to happen the same way again. No. In fact, some things can't happen the same way again. What do you mean, Marshal? When you only got one son, you can only kill him once. Now, what was it, Joshua? An argument? Did he finally stand up on his feet and defy you? No. No, you're wrong, Marshal. You know, you're the only man in Dodge with a lock on his barn. You tell me something. Did Jabel have a key to it? No, he didn't. And what made you think he was out there at his chores yesterday morning when he didn't even have a key to get into the barn? All right. I shot him. He was a thief. He was your own son. I caught him in the middle of the night, breaking into the barn. He was going to take a load of hay to the craters. Give it to him, mind you. He ignored my orders, cursed me, and I shot him. He's the same as any other common thief. The jury will see it that way. I wouldn't count on it, Joshua. All right, now, give me the rifle. Give it to me. All right, let's go. Wait a minute. I got a nail up that door. I can't leave it open. I got valuable hay in that barn. Don't worry about it, Joshua. The neighbors will take care of it for you. Now, come on. star, William Conrad. You know, land was cheap on the frontier because there was so much of it. 
Yet on our next gun smoke, a man is killed over a few acres. But that was the West. Good night. Gunsmoke, produced and directed by Norman McDonald, stars William Conrad as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal. The special music for Gunsmoke was composed and conducted by Rex Corey. Sound patterns by Tom Hanley and Bill James. Featured in the cast were Ralph Moody, John Daner, and Virginia Christine. Harley Bear is Chester, Howard McNear is Doc, and Georgia Ellis is Kitty. Christmas seals give your cards and packages that holiday look. Help fight tuberculosis. Buy and use Christmas seals. Sunny Afternoon, a somewhat incongruous title of a grim Gunsmoke episode from the late fall of 1955 and from the big broadcast on WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. Jill Arold Bailey is our co-producer, and Kennedy Wright, Kenny Pirog, and Mike Kidd are the audio engineers. You can reach us by email at bigbroadcast at wamu.org. Our website is thebigbroadcast.org. And you're missing something if you haven't checked us out on Facebook, The Big Broadcast, and on Instagram, Big Broadcast WAMU. Here's an unlikely entry in our tribute tonight to the American theater. It's a wartime episode of Lum and Abner, and the folks at the Jotham Down store are putting on a play to help sell war bonds. The other theme of the show is very contemporary, staving off inflation. At the time, the government was leading that economic fight with wage and price controls. The show comes from May 6, 1943, the NBC Blue Network and Lum and Abner. My granny's Abner, I believe that's our ring. I know his Lum, I believe you're right. I'll see. Hello, jot him down, store. This is Lum and Abner. Let's see what's going on down in Pine Ridge. Well, the co-chairman of the Pine Ridge War Savings Staff held a business luncheon yesterday to map out a big sales campaign. And as we look in on the little community today, we find co-chairman Peabody and Cedric Weehunt back in the feed room of the Jotham Downs door working on some plan in connection with that campaign. Listen. Let's try it through once more, Mr. Abner. No, we got it long good enough now, Cedric. Uh, just recollect the new words to the song. Yes, Mom, I know I'm good. Well, come on, let's go tell them we're all set to rehearse a play then. Yes, Mom. Oh, let's down the old pine tree. I got Cedric all learned good now, Long. Well, good, good. I, I bound it will be the head of the whole show. Oh, no <laughs> doubts about it. Hey, Grandpappy, have you got your part all studied by now? 
What's that, Lum? Are you ready to start acting, Grandpa? Oh, yeah, yeah. I've done ready, clean through. I'm all set. Well, good. Let's get started then, Lum. Yeah. Doggy, I'd love to be in places, Lum. <laughs> oh, boy, I want to be a regular play actor. Yeah. Uh, when did you say we're going to give this thing, Lum? Saturday night. Oh. Over at the schoolhouse. Schoolhouse, huh? Yeah, we're having a big bond rally to start off this war savings campaign that me and you are heading up. Oh, sure, that's right. Yeah, we're the co-chairmen's, ain't we? Hey, Mr. Lum, that's one thing I don't quite understand about this play that we're going to put on. Uh, what's that, Cedric? I, I can tell you whatever it is. I know it all by heart. Well, uh, what I want to know is, what what is it all about, anyway? What's it about? Yes, Mom. Well, along me, Cedric, you done read it, haven't you? Yes, Mom, but I, I never did understand none of it, though. Oh, well, it's just a play, that's all. Just something to entertain the folks to get them to come to this barn rally. Well, it's more than that, Abner. It shows uh, one reason why folks ought to put their money in war bonds. To keep down inflation. Help any it. Huh? Help any it. Do what to it, Lon? I mean, keep down the cost of living. Oh. That's a dangerous problem the country's facing right now. Dangerous, huh? Oh, yeah. Once that inflation starts inflating and everything gets out of control, we're ruined financial. Never other which way. Oh, my goodness, a lot. Prices will raise up higher and higher to where our money gets might not worth it. It does. And then finally, everything comes crashing down. We have panics and depressions and all such as that. Huh. It's just like that old lettered saying of mine, everything that goes up must come down. Well, I reckon... Huh. Uh, what was that again, Long? I said everything that goes up must come down. Huh. Everything that goes up must... Hey, dog, is there's one old lettered saying I don't believe I can get mixed up on. Well, you just ain't trying. All right, fellas, now let's get let's the thing see, started. Everything that goes up. Abner, forget that. Now, don't stir up nothing. Well, I was just trying to think about it. All right, fellas, uh, do you all know what part you're playing? Yeah, I do. I'm Mrs. Jones, a housewife. Yeah, and I'm a farmer. Mr., uh, let's see, what is my name? Uh, Mr. Brown. Yeah, what's my first name, Long? It don't matter, Abner. Why, sure it does. Somebody says, hello, Elsie, why... I want to know if they're talking to me or not. Well, nobody ain't going to say hello, Elsie, in this play. I, I, I believe I'll be Bueller. Bueller Jones. I love that name. All right. That's yeah, fine. Bueller. That is a beautiful name. Yes, it is. Love it. Love it. You know who you are, don't you, Cedric? Yes, Mom. I'm Cedric. Well, he means in the play, Cedric, you're Mr. Green, a white-collar worker. Well, I ain't got no white-collar, though. Well, that don't matter. Well, my collar's blue, same as my shirt. Can I be a blue-collar worker? No, Cedric, now just leave it the way Lom's got it wrote. You're Mr. White, a green-collar worker. Yes, Mom. Are you in this, too, Mr. Lom? Yeah, I got a little part in it, Cedric. I'm Mr. Piedmont J. Linwood, a big merchant. I run a store. Yeah, how come you got the fanciest name of all of us, Lom? Well, it just worked out that way. Oh. Uh, all right, let's rehearse this one. Now. Yeah, I'm ready, I'm ready. All right. Now, the opening scene is Mr. Piedmont J. Linwood's high-class store. And into the store comes Ms. Jones. Uh, which Ms. Jones? Elsie? Yeah, Elsie. Oh, well, that ain't me, then. I'm Bueller. Well, all right, it's Bueller, then. Oh, both of us. Well, good. Now, here we go. Everybody quiet now. Piedmont Linwood speaks first. Oh, this is a fine day today. I wonder who will be my first customer. Ah, oh, here comes one now. It is Miss Jones. Am I inside yet? Yeah. Ah, how do you do, Mr. Piedmont J. Linwood? Oh, how do you do, Mrs. Jones? What do you want today, Mrs. Jones? Let's see now, where's my place? Oh, but I will pay cash for no, it. No, wait, 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 you skip some lines there. 
Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, I want to buy a electric toaster, Mr. Piedmont J. Linwood. I am sorrowful, Mrs. Jones, but I have just one electric toaster in stock, and I have promised same to Mrs. Smith. But I will pay cash for it. How much is same? Same is $10, Mrs. Jones. I will give you $12 for same, Mr. Piedmont J. Linwood. What is this same I'm buying, Lom? That's an electric toaster. Oh. I am sorrowful, Mrs. Jones, but the ceiling price is $10. Ah, here comes into my store another customer. Ah, it is Mr. Green. Cedric, that's you. Mom. He said Mr. Green, that's you. I thought I was Mr. Blue. No, you're mixed up. You're Mr. White, the green collar worker. Mom, you oughtn't to give Cedric this part, colorblind as he is and all. Well, that won't hurt none. Come on, Cedric, read your part there. Yes, Mom. How do you do, Mr. Piedmont J. Linwood? I would like to buy an electric toaster for my wife. I never know that I was buried, though. Well, in this you are. It don't matter. I am sorrowful, Mr. Green, but same has done been promised to Mrs. Smith. And I will give $13 for it. Dog is howling up there. Oh, I will give $15 for it. I will give $20 for it. Who will make it 20 Oh, excuse me. Go ahead. Dog is long. What's this toaster made out of? Diamonds? Just read what's wrote down there, Abby. Oh. Go on, Cedric. I will give $25 for same. Oh, but Mr. Green, can you afford that? Yes, Mom, Mr. Piedmont J. Linwood. I got a raise today and have extra money to spend. Oh, you got a raise? I must phone my husband that works in a restaurant. Yes. Hello, Mr. Jones, this is your wife doing the talking. Mr. Green got a raise, so you must get one, too, so I can buy electric toaster. Ah, oh, that is fine. You got a $10 raise. Goodbye. Dog, it's my husband sure has got a nice boss. Well, leave out them comments, Admiral. Mixes us up. Continue. Uh, now, Mr. Piedmont J. Linwood, I will give $35 for the electric toaster. Wait one minute, Mrs. Jones. I must call Washington. Hello, Washington? I would like to ask you to raise the ceiling price on just one article, electric toasters. Thank you kindly. Goodbye. All right, Mrs. Jones, you can now have the toaster for $35. Ah, oh, thank you kindly, Mr. Piedmont J. Linwood. All right, now, that's the end of Act 1. Oh, Sounding good, ain't it? Oh, wonderful. Now, now it comes Act Two. It's a few days later, and we're in Mr. Piedmont J. Linwood's store again. Oh. Farmer Brown's in there looking around. Farmer Brown? Huh? All right, Granddad, go ahead. You're Farmer Brown. Yeah, I know that. Reckon I ought to talk with our rural dialect? No, just read it like it's wrote there. Well, that's good, because I don't know whether I can talk backwards here or not. Oh, you can talk country. You have to put on a little Granddad. Yeah, I'll try it. Oh, my goodness, Mr. Peabot J. Linwood, how high your prices are today. Well, that is on account of the following, Farmer Brown. Mrs. Jones' husband, who works at a restaurant, got a raise so she could buy a electric toaster. And in order to pay her husband that raise, the restaurant had to raise its prices. So now I have to raise my prices in order to get enough money to eat on at the restaurant, Farmer Brown. Well, I cannot afford such prices. I must telephone. Hello? Washington? Please, would you raise farm prices so I can afford to live? Thank you kindly. Goodbye. Doggies, I'm going to call that Washington feller up and ask him for something. Hey, up, Abner. Go on, Granddad. Uh, now I can afford your prices, Mr. Piedmont J. Linwood. I will take one pair of overall size medium. Yes, sir, Farmer Brown. That will be $19. That's the end of the second act. Oh, 
Sounding good, eh? Oh, beautiful. All right, here's Lovely. the last act now. Who do we fall in love with, Long? Well, Mrs. Jones is in the store again. Oh. Mrs. Reynolds Jones. It's a few months later. Ah. Ah, how do you do, Mr. Piedmont J. Linwood? I would like to buy a new card for my electric toaster. I I can let you have a nice one for a hundred and ninety-eight dollars. Oh dear, oh dear. Isn't that a little high? Yes, a little, Mrs. Jones, but Farmer Brown raised his prices again, and that made the food prices at the restaurant where I eat go up again, and so I had to raise mine again so I could eat. You had better have your husband get another raise. Yes, Mr. Piedmont J. Linwood, I reckon so. He's making $9,000 a week now, but we just can't make ends meet. Oh, dear, oh, dear, ain't there something we can do to stop all this, Mr. Piedmont J. Linwood? Yes, Mrs. Jones, there is. And here is what to do. All right, come on, Cedric. Here's where you and Abner come in. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah. All right, say one, two. Oh, you, you cut, cut down, down your old expenses and just buy what you actually need. To keep all prices in line in this critical time, put your cash in the war saving bonds. Hold down inflation. Put your cash in the war saving bonds. I that's a masterpiece, if I did oh, write it myself. That is beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that ought to show the folks how dangerous this inflation stuff is and learn them a lesson that what they ought to do about it. Oh, sure. Yeah, it ought to. Sure. Did you learn a lesson, Cedric? This mom, it sure did. Well, good for you. This mom, I'm going right over and see my boss and ask him for a raise. $9,000 a week. <laughs> Lum and Abner, fighting inflation with dramatic art in the wartime spring of 1943. This is the big broadcast from WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. There's an interesting reference in tonight's dragnet. It's to another detective, G.K. Chesterton's Father Brown, himself the hero of a lovely radio series that we've played before on the big broadcast and that we'll hear again next week. Forefathers' Day, naturally. For now, we'll content ourselves with Friday and Romero in the summer of 1950. And speaking of the Tony Awards, the story's called The Big Actor from NBC and Dragnet. The story you are about to hear is true. Only the names have been changed to protect the innocent. You're a detective sergeant. You're assigned to narcotics detail. A large hospital in your city is held up. $10,000 in high-grade narcotics is stolen. The bandits escape. Your job, get them. Dragnet, the documented drama of an actual crime. For the next 30 minutes, in cooperation with the Los Angeles Police Department, you will travel step by step on the side of the law through an actual case from official police files. From beginning to end, 
from crime to punishment, Dragnet is the story of your police force in action. It was Monday, October 23rd. It was foggy in Los Angeles. We were working a day watch out of narcotics detail. My partner's Ben Romero. The boss is Captain Kearney. My name's Friday. It was 7.16 a.m. when we got to St. Christopher's Hospital, the pharmacy. How you do? Yes? Police officer, sister. We'd like to see Sister Mary Benedict. I'm she. Mother Superior sent us down to see you, sister. We're investigating the narcotics robbery. Oh, yes, there have been quite a few policemen here in the past hour. I believe it was the fingerprint men who just left. Just a minute, I have their card. Yes, they were from Leighton Fingerprint Division. Stahl and the boys from Leighton Prince. Yes, that's right. Sergeant Harlan Stahl. Sister, we're the investigating officers assigned to the case. This is Sergeant Romero. My name's Friday. Are you a lieutenant? No, I'm a sergeant. I wonder if you could start right from the beginning for us. Just tell us what you know about the robbery. Well, after mass, I went to breakfast, and then I came downstairs here to the pharmacy to open up. You keep the pharmacy locked overnight? Oh, yes, always. We always assign an intern on night duty. He has the key in case any medicines are needed during the night. He's authorized to issue what may be needed upon the doctor's request. Who else has a key to the pharmacy, sister? Well, they're just three keys. Mother Superior keeps one at her desk, and we have one for the intern on duty, and I have one. All right. You want to go on? When I got down here this morning, I started to unlock the door and found it ajar. There were no lights on. I snapped on the wall switch. That one. Mm-hmm. That's when I saw young Jimmy Lyons. That's the intern? Yes, he was unconscious on the floor. I could see his head had been cut. He was bleeding profusely. What'd you do then? I called Mother Superior, and she came right down. Dr. Spencer was summoned. He came in and started administering aid to intern lines there on the floor. Is that when you found out the narcotics were missing? No, not just at that moment. Both Mother Superior and myself were quite worried about young Lyon's condition. It was really Mother Superior who first noticed the narcotic safe had been tampered with. Your stories don't exactly jibe there, sister. How do you mean? Mother Superior gives you credit for first noticing the theft. Oh, my, no. She's very charitable, but she's the first one who pointed to the safe. She's very observant. I understand. Go ahead, please. Upon checking the safe, we found that someone had taken our entire store of narcotics. Everything. Is that the safe over there? Yes, that's the narcotic safe. Don't touch that, Mr. Friday. No? No, never. Nothing is to be touched until the police have completed their investigation. Clues. Well, we're the police, sister. Then do you have all the clues you need? Well, I wouldn't know, but the men from Leighton Fingerprints have dusted everything here, so it's all right to touch things now. That was Mr. Holland Stolley's men? Yes, that's right. Oh, I didn't know. We understand you have the inventory list. Yes, I have it on my desk. Here. Thank you. We keep a running inventory, so that's the exact amount that's missing. Yes, ma'am. Cocaine and morphine. No bird's eye, Joe. Big haul, huh? Looks like about 10,000 worth. I'd like to have a copy of this inventory, sister. Would you take the carbon? I'd like to keep the originals for my monthly files. I'll be fine. Outside of this intern, Lyons, nobody saw whoever it was. No. Mother Superior and I have interrogated everyone. We made a thorough investigation on our own. I took notes. That's so? Yes, that's the way Father Brown does it. Father Brown? Oh, yes, he's an expert detective. Brown. You wouldn't mean Thad Brown? No, Father Brown. Father Brown. 
You people have your own detectives now? Oh, my, no. He's not a regular detective. He's more like Mother Superior and myself. Is that right? Yes, he's in England. Solves some really difficult cases. Here, I'll show you. See, right here? The Triple Cross, another exciting Father Brown mystery by G.K. Chesterton. Oh. Yes, I've all but one of the Father Brown books. Mother Superior has it. I, I get it after she finishes. Mm-hmm. What's the condition of the intern? He's resting comfortably. Dr. Spencer says he'll be all right. Had to take nine stitches in his scalp. We'd like to talk to him. I'm sure that'll be all right. I don't have to tell you we all think this is a terrible thing. Yes, sister, it is. All those narcotics. Whoever took them will distribute them, won't they? Well, that's our guess, sister. The stuff will be sold to addicts. What makes a dope addict? How do they get started? Why do they do it? I don't know, sister. I give you a lot of reasons. None of them good. None of them good. And for a few moments of what? Tonight they have it and tomorrow they have nothing. That's about the size of it, sister. The stars are setting and the caravan starts for the dawn of nothing. The Bible? No. Omar Khayyam. St. Christopher's Hospital, we talked with intern James Lyons. Since he was slugged from behind, he failed to see his assailant. He could tell us nothing. The entire hospital staff was screened thoroughly. They could add nothing to what we already knew. Between 6 and 7 o'clock that morning, $10,000 worth of high-grade prescription narcotics had been stolen. Somewhere in the city of Los Angeles was the answer. As in all narcotics cases, speed is the prime factor. Whoever held those narcotics wouldn't waste any time diluting or cutting it and making it ready for quick sale. Our job was to stop him. Five minutes past 8 a.m., we checked in with Sergeant Harlan Stahl at Lake and Fingerprints Detail. Not much help, is it? That's all you got, huh? Yeah, the safe was clean, not a print on it. No prints anywhere in the room. Slugged the intern from behind, took his keys, uh, tore a belt loop off his trousers, opened the safe and waltzed out. Couldn't have been cleaner. Yeah. You didn't get anything on your end, huh? Nothing. Gentlemen? Captain? I picked one up. Who is he? Junker by the name of Babe Kellogg. He's really seeing seeing Steve, but he's coming out of it. Let's go talk to him. Check you later, Stone. Yeah. What's the story on him? Wallace and Hunt picked him up. Downtown L.A. He was sitting in a parked car at 4th and Broadway. Thought at first he was a 390, but they couldn't raise him. He's down this way. What else? Well, Wallace figured he must be geed up, so they rolled up his sleeve to look for the spike marks. They found him. Find anything on him? Yeah, there were two vials of M on the seat behind him, beside him, prescription stuff. You got that list of serial numbers from the hospital? Yeah, right here. All right, let's go in. Wallace? Yeah, Captain? Try to get a list of the serial numbers on that hospital heist. Hop down and check them against the vials you found in his car. Yeah, here you are, Wallace. Thanks, Joe. How are you feeling, babe? All right. Kellogg, this is Friday in Romero, Central Division. I see him. You want to tell us about it? Nothing to tell. Living high, aren't you? I'm unusual. It's not the way I get it. You're scoring good. Prescription stuff. Birthday present from a friend. Who is it? I want to keep his friendship. Who's your connection, babe? I don't know. You know that morphine we picked out of your car is hot. Is it all of it? 
Hospital pharmacy was knocked over this morning. If the numbers on those vials of yours match up, you're in a real jam. No numbers on them. You might as well tell us where you got it. I'm not going to be a Fagin for you. Nobody's asking to be a Fagin, Kellogg. That's high-powered stuff. If we don't get anybody else, it can go hard for you. I'm not going to bite the hand that feeds me. You want to stand it alone on this one, not the idea? I didn't say that. Well, one of us isn't going to go along and hold your hand. How about it? Who's your connection? All right, it isn't going to be a long wait, Kellogg. As soon as Walters gets back with those serial numbers, you can play hero all afternoon. That'll be on the 12th floor of the county jail, babe. You won't have to wait long there, either. The minute you put one foot in that courtroom, the judge will throw you, throw everything he's got at you. Two bottles of drugstore stuff? Robbery, Kellogg. $10,000. This is good, but two bottles ain't worth that much. You only show a part of it. Maybe you got the rest of it at your plant. You got my plant. 1931 Essex. Four-wheel brakes. Your car's being checked out. Didn't find any more, did you? No. I couldn't be that lucky. You feel pretty good now, but you'll get a yen on you won't help me, you never do. When's the last time you helped us? Your memory's worse than mine. I helped you. I helped you guys a lot. Don't you remember the Frank Smith plant? No. 1933, Friday night last. I led you right to Smitty's plant. Smitty didn't have no geezer like he found on me. He was a big man. We turned up four kites on him. Not for us, you didn't. Sure I did. Right here in Kansas City. I done you a big favor that night. Friday night last. A different town and a different night, babe. You're kidding. In the St. Louis? Seeing Steve. Yeah. Don't kid me along. This is Kansas City. Uh, where is the St. Louis? You're in Los Angeles, babe. Los Angeles, California. You're kidding. Clenard wouldn't do that to me. Who's Clenard? Eleventh in Baltimore. Hangs out down at the Continental Hotel. That's in Kansas City? Yeah. Marty Clenard. Tough cop. He said to make a hot for me. He didn't want me in KC. Gave me a floater out of town. That's why I came here to St. Louis. You're in Los Angeles, babe. You got it? Los Angeles. Oh, yeah. You told me. Want to step outside a minute? Yeah. Stay with him, Romel. Right. That's it. Checks out, huh? Somebody cut through the serial number stamps on the vials, but you can still make them out. The two vials of morphine we found in Kellogg's car were from the hospital pharmacy. Thanks, Wallace. Let's try it again, Friday. Right. All right, babe, now let's cut out the jokes. Those two vials you had came from the hospital. The numbers check out. No numbers on those vials. How do you know? You probably didn't even look at them. Oh, yeah, I looked. No numbers on them. We found them, all right. I don't see how you could read them. I couldn't. Why not? Somebody scratched them off. Who, babe? You wouldn't know him. Try us. How much heat do I have to stand if I take it along? Plenty. There was an intern slugged on that job. Hurt pretty bad. They're going to tag you for assault, too. I never hurt anybody in my life. How do we know? I just told you. We don't know you didn't pull this job. We haven't got any proof. Uh, once more, what's the count? Goes like this, babe. First degree robbery, five years to life. Assault with a deadly weapon, one to ten. Violation of the State Narcotics Act, 1 to 15. You can add. They'll lose you up there. You can get a real yen on by that time. There's no buzzing up at Q. I can't go that route. Where'd you get the stuff? I'd rather be a Fagan than spend 50 years at the joint. You convinced us. Where'd you get it? Anybody turned Fagan before they'd spend 50 years at Q. No, I can't go that route. Where'd you get it, babe? From some joy popper. Who? I gave him 700 bucks. Clean me. Who? Come to me, passing himself off as a croaker. 
I can spot a guy's been hitting speedballs a mile away. I knew he wasn't any crooker. What was his name? He was scoring good somewhere. Oh, that's Cecil and Mary. Now I know where he got it. Give us his name, babe. He's a bit player in pictures, Leonard Castle. Where is he? You're my Arizona. On location. How could he be on location when you bought that stuff from him this morning? Half the plane this morning, he was on his way. Leonard Castle. Picture actor, that right? You got it. Run it down. 10 a.m., we checked the name Leonard Castle through R&I. We found nothing. We looked in the phone book and got the number. Garfield, 3711, Central Casting. Central Casting. Los Angeles Police Department calling. Yes, sir. Do you have a Leonard Castle registered with you? One moment. Yes, we do. wonder if you could tell me if he's working. Oh, just a minute. I have his card right here. Yes, he's working. He's doing crime report for Schumann and Kester, independent production. They're shooting over at Sound Stages Incorporated. They're working today? Yes, he is. You're sure that company's not on location? No, we have no location showing for that picture. Well, could you give me his call, please? Surely. He had a uh, 9 o'clock call today, stage 3. Did you wish to see Mr. Castle? Yeah. You shouldn't have any trouble locating him over there. We'll find him. <laughs> listening to Dragnet, actual case histories taken from official police files. Ten thirty AM. Central Casting gave us Leonard Castle's home address, and Detectives Long and Hunt went on immediate stakeout. Ben and I drove out to Sound Stages Incorporated and checked in at the reception desk. We showed them our identification. We were issued a pass to Sound Stage Three. This is stage one. Stage three ought to be down there. Yeah. Not a very big lot. No, it's pretty small. Watch the truck, Ben. Think Kellogg knew what he's talking about? We'll know in a couple of minutes. Not very usual. Joy Popper pulling a job like that. They all start somewhere. Huh. That's a good way to get around a movie lot. Bicycle. Better than walking. Sure, a thick fog, isn't it? Yeah, we don't have them often, but when we get them, they're a real pea super. Oh, here we are. You better hold it, Ben. Red light, they're shooting in there. Oh, yeah, I didn't see it. Oh, stage five, you know? Couldn't tell you. Okay. All clear. Let's go in. Hey, uh, fella. Yeah. wonder if you can tell us where we could find Leonard Castle. Sure. Rosie, call Leonard Castle, will you? Call him on scene. Okay. Leonard Castle. Leonard Castle. Guess we can wait over here by the phone, huh? He'll be right here. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Rosie, you call me? These gentlemen want to see you. Thanks, Rosie. You want to see me? Your name, Leonard Castle? Yeah, that's right. Police officers. Yeah? There's some place where we can talk. We're... Is this all right? I got to stick close. I might be in the next shot. All right. You know a fellow by the name of Babe Kellogg? No. He says he knows you. No, I never heard of him. You sure? Put us on a bell, George. Hold the work. Quiet down. Quiet. Have to hold it a minute. They're lining up a shot. Lefty, move that brute about a foot and a half to your right. That's it. Hold it right there. Make it a little hotter. A couple of turns. Whoa, whoa. 
That's good. Baxter, give me an inky dink right here, camera left. Harry. Hello. When Fred Conrad crosses over at the table, can you help me out a little? Can you bring this one down about two points on the dimmer? It's done. Don, you get that? Uh, already, Miller. Mr. Conrad? Yes, sir. Take it real easy. Remember, you don't know your sergeant's got a clue until he comes to you with it. All right. You're anticipating a little bit, okay? Mm-hmm. Let's try it. Bob, watch that mic shatter. We're getting it on that wall. Am I out now? No, too much. You come in a little. That's fine. You're clear. All ready? All ready. We can try one. Turn them over. Rolling. Speed. Action. All right, Chief. As soon as I get all the clues, I'll be right down. Piece of that broken window, huh? That's right. It's plastic with fingerprints. Yeah? We got our man. Cut. Yeah. Save him. Let's hold this fire, folks. You never heard of Babe Kellogg, huh? That's right. Where were you at six o'clock this morning, Cass? In bed. We got men out your place checking. Well, what's it all about? Between six and seven o'clock this morning, somebody robbed the pharmacy at St. Christopher's Hospital. They slugged the intern, made off with over $10,000 worth of narcotics. Yeah? If we find you were in bed between six and seven, you're clear. Oh, well, I was. Anybody to back up that alibi? Well, that lady, I guess she'd know. What time she'd generally get up? Oh, I don't know. Why? She couldn't very well back you up. She was still asleep. Well, she's usually up early. Thought you said you didn't know what time she got up. Well, I mean, I don't usually know. But you knew this morning? No. And you don't know Babe Kellogg? Simmer down, everybody. Let's have it quiet. Light them off. What do you read on that junior, Harry? Nine plus. It'll make it a little hotter. A little hotter, Jack. That's it. Whoa. Ten plus, Steve. That's it. How about it, Steve? Anything. Turn him over. Rolling. Spade. Action. All right, Chief. As soon as I get all the clues, I'll be right in. Look what I found, Jack. Piece of broken window, huh? That's right. It's plastic with prints. Yeah? We got our man. Cut. Jake, you said plastered with oh. prints. The line reads, plastered with fingerprints. you got to say the whole word. They'll never know what you mean in Vancouver. Come here, I'll talk to you. Yeah. Yeah. Hold the work. Keep it quiet. That's Miller. He's a tough director, but he's a good one. How long have you been doing this kind of work, Castle? Oh, six, seven years. What pictures have you been in? Oh, I don't think you'd have noticed. They're mostly small parts. What kind of parts you got in this picture? I play a cop. What would you like to do? In this picture? No, I mean, what's your ambition? You going to stay in pictures? Yeah, I'd like to like to get a few bigger parts if I could. It's pretty tough to try and sell yourself to producer if he can't see you on film. Money's pretty good, though, isn't it? Oh, it all depends. It's a different deal on each picture you do. Mm -hmm. You have an agent? No. no. I did have. Wasn't doing anything for me, so I let him go. I'm not represented now. Pretty hard to build any kind of a name without an agent, isn't it? It all depends. If you can keep up a good front, nice car, that's all that counts in this town. You really believe that, do you? <laughs> don't you? Well, I don't know much about it. I'm not an actor. You said you didn't know Babe Kellogg at all, didn't you? No, I don't know. You said you saw your landlady at 6 o'clock this morning. No, I didn't say that. Well, there's Theodore Milton, the director. Would you like to meet him? What time did you see your landlady this morning? Oh, Mr. Milton. Yeah, Castle. When are you going to get to me, Millie? You need me in the shop? No, still on the same thing. We'll get to you till after lunch. Yeah. You can stay with your friends. Okay. What time does it break for lunch, Castle? Oh, this company usually breaks around 12.30. Hmm, it's only 11.15. Maybe we can go outside and talk. The director said he didn't need you. Why, you never want to believe the director. It's always the first assistant. We could check with him, couldn't we? Oh, I don't like to do that. I... Hate to ask any favors. Said he wasn't going to use you till after lunch. Well, it isn't a good policy to bother the first assistant. Well, it's probably better in here anyway. I didn't see any place to sit down outside. Unless you have a car in the lot. Do you have a car? No, I don't. But you told us you had a car. 
No, I, I didn't tell you that, did I? Well, you said something about keeping up a good front, nice car. Isn't that what you said? Oh. Oh, sure, I have a car. I, I don't know what I was thinking about. Yeah, I have a car. Mm-hmm. I thought you said you had a car. Well, I tell you, this picture act will drive you crazy. I don't know what I'm saying after that. Maybe you made a mistake about Babe Kellogg. Do you know him? No, I'm sure about that. I don't know any Babe Carson. Kellogg. You're Kellogg, you know. I, I, I don't know him. Would you mind showing us your wallet? Well, what for? You want to see my identification? Can we see the wallet, please? All right. Yeah. No, you hold it. Would you open it up? Okay. Quiet, please. All right, Steve. Yeah, okay. Fair enough. Roy? Steve. All right. Nice and easy now. Fingerprints, Jake. Right. Action. All right, Chief. As soon as I get all the clues, I'll be right in. Look what I found. Piece of broken window, huh? That's right. It's plastic with fingerprints. Yeah. We got our man. Cut. Same. No talking, folks. See how much money you got in your wallet, Castle. No, you hold it. Just count it for us. Oh, there it is. What about the rest of it in there? Hmm? All right, I didn't see it. All right, count it. Just a few hundred here. Count it. All right. Let's see. Well, I can see 450s right there on top. That's 200, isn't it? Yeah. It's 300. 450. Yeah, go on. I didn't know I had this much. That's 250 more. That makes 700, doesn't it? It's more than I thought I had. There's two more tens and a five there. That's $725 cast. Yeah. Doing pretty well on this picture, aren't you? It's not all picture money. All right, you can put your wallet away. Thanks. If you didn't make this money on the picture, where'd you get it? Play little cards last night. Play pretty late? Yeah, pretty late. Aren't you tired this morning? No. Not even when you got up at six? Did I say I got up at six? Now, listen, Castle. You don't know what you said, but one thing's sure you're lying to us. You know Babe Kellogg, and you owe him well enough to sell him two vials of high-grade morphine. Oh, you're wrong about that. All right, then you set us straight. Kellogg says he paid you $700 for this stuff. You got over $700 in your wallet. That's more than you need for lunch money. Now, this could be a coincidence. You set us straight. Well, you're wrong. Where'd you get the money? Turn up. Roy? Steve. Action. All right, Chief. As soon as I get all the clues, I'll be right in. Piece of broken window, huh? That's right. It's plastic with fingerprints. Yeah? We got our man. Cut. All right, once more. Where'd you get the money, Castle? I told you I played cards. It won't do. Got the keys to your car? I can't leave. We'll get you excused. We want to look at your car. No, no, don't do that. All right, then. Do you know Babe Kellogg? I, I don't know. Turn him. Rolling? Babe. Action. All right, Chief. Since I get all the clues, I'll be right in. He's a broken window, huh? That's right. That's plastic with fingerprints. Yeah? We got our man. Cut. Print it. All it for Lily. Do you know Babe Kellogg? Yes. Yes, I know him. I know him. You robbed that hospital this morning. I needed it. I needed the money. I had to have it. I, I owed money. They were going to take my car. I, I was broke. What else could I do? I was sick once. I stayed at St. Christopher's. I knew where they kept the drugs. I knew if I could get them, I could make some fast money. I didn't mean to hit the kid. I, I couldn't let him see me. He didn't have to be there, did he? He didn't have to be there. I, I sold old Babe the stuff and the rest is in the car under the seat. I, I needed the money of it. I, I was broke. I was broke. 
Better get him out of here, Ben. Mm-hmm. Come on, Castle. That was a great reading. My name's Milton. I'm directing this picture. You the boy's agent? No, sir. Never heard him read better. Funny thing, though. Yeah? In front of the camera, he goes to the dogs. The story you've just heard was true. Only the names were changed to protect the innocent. On January 28th, trial was held in Superior Court, Department 91, City and County of Los Angeles, State of California. In a moment, the results of that trial. Leonard Francis Castle was tried and convicted of first-degree robbery and violating the State Narcotics Act. He received sentences as prescribed by law. Alfred Babe Kellogg was convicted of violating the State Narcotics Act. Both men are now serving their terms in the state penitentiary. You have just heard Dragnet, a series of authentic cases from official files. Technical advice comes from the office of Chief of Police W.H. Parker, Los Angeles Police Department. Dragnet, the big actor, from August 10th, 1950, and from the big broadcast. I'm Murray Horwitz. Jill Arold Bailey is our co-producer. Kennedy Wright, Kenny Pirog, and Mike Kidd are the audio engineers. And this is WAMU Washington, your listener-supported NPR news station from American University. In HD at 88.5, on your smart speaker, and at WAMU.org. The theater was such a big part of early radio The first great radio drama creators generally came from the theater, most notably Orson Welles. His big pop culture success came when he was 22 years old as the voice of Lamont Cranston in The Shadow. As old-time radio buffs know, it was not he who intoned who knows what evil lurks in the hearts of men, but rather the actor Frank Reddick. Mr. Wells only performed The Shadow in the 1937-38 season. After that, there was a succession of shadows, but we're going to hear the longest-tenured one, Brett Morrison, who played Lamont Cranston for nearly a decade until the show's demise in 1954. This episode is set in a theater. It's called The Ghost Without a Face, and it comes from March 10, 1946, The Mutual Network and... The Shadow. Who knows what evil lurks in the hearts of men? The Shadow knows. <laughs> Once again, the Mutual Network brings you the thrilling adventures of the shadow, the hard and relentless fight of one man against the forces of evil. These dramatizations are designed to demonstrate forcibly to old and young alike that crime does not pay. The shadow who feeds the forces of law and order is in reality Lamont Cranston, wealthy young man about town. Years ago in the Orient, Cranston learned a strange and mysterious secret. The hypnotic power to cloud men's minds so they cannot see him. Cranston's friend and companion, the lovely Margot Lane, is the only person who knows to whom the voice of the invisible shadow belongs. Today's drama, Ghosts Without 
of fate. Third act, Mr. Johnson. Curtain going up. Third act, Mr. Johnson. Is anything wrong? Door's not locked. Maybe he's not in his dressing room. Oh, I'd better have a look. Mr. Johnson. Oh, well, there you are, sir. At your dressing table. You're still in your dressing robe. Third act curtain is up, sir. Raise it high, Billy. That pack of stupid ingrates will never gaze upon the handsome face of Gaylord Johnson again. What's the matter, Mr. Johnson? You sound sick. Yes, sick and dying. You see only my back. Now, now, Billy, look upon my face. Mr. Johnson, your face. It's bleeding. Ripped and slashed with my own razor blade. There's blood on your arms. Your wrists are cut. I cut them. I died. No. But they killed me. They spurned me off. Let me go. But they can't escape the horror that will return to them after death. Let me go. Let me go. You'll see me again. I'll return from the dead to haunt this theater for eternity. Help somebody. Mr. Johnson killed himself. Mr. Johnson's dead. He killed himself. I have heard stories about your theater, that it's haunted, that some fantastic ghost without a face roams about at night in that house. The police search the place thoroughly. There's nothing more they can do, and that's why I've come to you, Mr. Cranston. As an amateur criminologist, can't you help me track this thing down? You say you've actually heard this ghost, that you've seen it? Others have too, Mr. Cranston. Actors I've hired and tried to rehearse there. I can't keep a cast together. Let's try this, Mr. Ames, if you want to open your theater again. Rehearse in some other place until the night your new play opens. On opening night, have the entire theater searched thoroughly to be sure no one can be hiding. This thing is a ghost. You can't find it. Mr. Ames, you and I both know there aren't any such thing as ghosts. I've seen and heard. Gaylord Johnson's ghost with its face slashed and bloody. It's horrible. So horrible that it almost drove Billy, our young stage manager, out of his mind. His mind is still affected? His memory is gone completely. I tried to talk to him, Mr. Cranston. He, He doesn't remember a thing. Dreams, it seems to me the best thing to do to help you is to deliberately invite your ghost to appear. For you? Yes. Whatever it is, it's apparently trying to keep your theater closed by frightening people away. It's certain to do something if you open your house. Well, I don't think it's wise, Mr. Cranston, but I'll do it if you insist. Good. I'll be there with you to see if I can see and hear this ghost of Gaylord Johnson. Dark old place. Backstage, isn't it, Lamar? Mm-hmm. Well, 
first act's over, darling, and so far no ghost has appeared. Mm-hmm. Oh, I-, I think we'd better wait here in the wings out of the way until Mr. Ames comes off stage. Yes. Well, the play seems to be going very well. Ames has really splurged on this one, hasn't he? No. Lamont, what really happened here that night a year ago? Well, the third act had just started, as I understand, when Billy, the young stage manager, came running to Mr. Ames in a terrified, hysterical condition, telling him that Gaylord Johnson had killed himself. And when Mr. Ames reached the dressing room, the body had disappeared? Yes. There was blood on the floor and the dressing table and on the boy where Johnson had grabbed him before he died. And no trace of the body has ever been found? No. I still don't see how it could possibly have been taken from the theater that night. That stage was crowded with actors. But the fact remains it never has been found. Oh, Mr. Cranston, Miss Lang. Oh, hello, oh, Mr. Evening. Ames. Well, how do you like the play? Oh, it's very good, Mr. Ames. Where did you find that wonderful old actress, Madame Chambetta? Uh-huh. Because she did a magnificent bit in that last scene. Uh, okay. She's been in this country since the war. She's a real trooper, Miss Lang. Now, here she comes now. Oh? Uh, Madame Chambetta. Beautifully, Dorothea. And here are two new friends of yours. Prove it. Miss Lane, Mr. Quentin. How do you do, Madam Chambetta? It's a beautiful time. Thank you. Thank you so kind. I must change my costume now. I will see you later. Perhaps after the show. Second act. Places. Places, please. I uh, suppose you noticed, Mr. Quentin. I asked the police to surround the place. Had the place searched tonight? Thoroughly. Before any of the actors came in. There couldn't be anyone human hiding here. There go the lights, Lamont. Yes. Well, I think we'd better stay backstage here. I wish you would, both of you. Uh, We can stand right here. Oh. Goodness, it's awfully dark. Yes, it's the neighbor's scene in the dark. It's quite a start. There goes the curtain. No! No! That scream! That wasn't on stage! It's come from one of the dressing rooms. It's Madame Trombetta. Where's the dressing room? Quickly, from this way. Down this corridor here. Come on, quick. Something horrible happened. Well, this is the room. The door's locked. Help me break it in. Oh, hurry, hurry. Once more, Mr. Ames, hard. There it goes. Dorothea. There's no one in. The room's empty. Well, we just heard a voice calling for help from this room. It's the ghost. Johnson's ghost. He's killed her. He's killed her and spirited her body away. Lamont, what's happening in that theater? First the young boy and now Madame Trombetta? I don't know yet, Margot. I'm going back there tonight and find out. Darling, you've gone there before at night and the ghost has never appeared to you. I think he might this time, Margot. If he's killed Madame Trombetta and hidden her body in there. Why do you? I was just ghost chasing before, Margot. This time, I think we may find a killer. Oh, Lamont, look at that old theater. So dark, so ugly. It's almost as if it was challenging. It's probably hidden plenty of secrets. It's been standing there for years. Tony, I'm suddenly very afraid. Let, let's, let's wait. Come on, darling. Stick close to me. Now, we'll go down this alley here to the stage door. Well, all right. I guess I'd go through most anything to get even with whatever it was that harmed poor Billy. The old actress. Yes. Well, here's the door. 
so dark I can't see a thing. Come on, the door's open. I haven't touched it yet. And who are you? Who's coming into this theater? Go away. Get away quickly. I'm Lamont Cranston. Who are you? What are you doing here? Well, I'm Pops, the night man and the janitor. Hey, I, I've seen you two before. Well, you best keep away from here. Mr. Ames has given us permission to come here any time, Pops. Well, tonight maybe you come once too often. Why do you say that? I heard the voice tonight. In there. Louder. Angrier. Angrier than before. You've heard the ghost too? It tells me to follow but I know that there is death and madness where it leads. Well, why do you stay here then, Pops? Well, there's not many a job open for an old fellow like me. I'm safe if I don't listen. But now don't you two be going in there. We've got to tonight, Pops. You stay here at the door. Don't let anyone else in. We'll call you if we need you, Pops. All right, but remember I warned you. I can't see a thing here. Here, take my hand. Oh, you got the flashlight? No, no, Lamont, I, I thought you had. Oh, great. Really, Madonna, no. Oh, I'm sorry. Darling, just what do you expect to find? Wandering around in here in town. Yeah, I want to take a look at Johnson's dressing room first. That was where Johnson died and Madame Trombetta was killed. I wish I'd waited outside with Pops. <laughs> this old theater is certainly the perfect background for a ghost story. Yes, I wouldn't be surprised if... Oh! What's the matter, darling? Come on. There's a body hanging by its neck. I, I just bumped into it. Good Scott, there is something. <laughs> what is it? <laughs> you, you bumped into one of those big sandbags that's suspended from the rain. Oh, no. No. <laughs> uh, come on, darling. We'll get this over with as fast as possible. Oh. I see the dressing the Johnson used is just down here, I think. Uh, yeah. That's it right there, isn't it? Yes. Well, well, in, my friend. Wait. There's a voice coming from inside the dressing room. It's the ghost. It is. We're going to have a look at it. But... Come in, my friends, and gaze upon death. Lamont, there's someone sitting there at the dressing table. Yes, it does look like someone. My face, my ripped and bloody face. Sorry. Speaking about Johnson's voice. The power of my face will drive men mad. I'm going after that thing. Lamont, it's falling. Dummy, Margot. What? Using that dungeon scene, someone threw it on this dressing table chair. But there was a voice in this room, Lamont. I heard it. Yes, I heard it too, Margot, but there's no one in here but us. Go! 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 Before the horror strikes. Well, now the voice is coming from somewhere on the stage. Stay here, Margot. I've got to go after her. Lamont, don't leave me. Lamont, take me with you. Doom! Doom! Blundering! Lamont, where are you? Over here, Margot. Come here, take my hand. No, you are no madness. Margot, you shall look upon terror and death. Look out, Margot. Margot, look. Well, well, darling, it's so dark I can't see you. Just reach out your hand and I'll... I'll... Oh, there you are. What's going... Lamont. This isn't you, is it? No. Lovely lady. You are holding the hand of a ghost. A year ago.
ago today, General Courtney Hodges and his 1st Division were battling their way through the streets of Cologne. Your Red Cross girls were there, directly behind the lines, dispensing cheer and donuts to the battle-weary G.I.s. Today, your Red Cross is still there with the Army of Occupation. We have silenced the Wehrmacht, but your Red Cross still fights a battle, a battle against loneliness. For the men now overseas, the warmth and hospitality of the Red Cross Recreation Club is the one bright spot in their arduous task yet to be completed. At home, their comrades in the hospitals and other veterans struggling to adjust themselves to civilian life are also benefited by your Red Cross. More than 4,300 Red Cross hospital workers assisted servicemen in our veterans' hospitals during the year of 1945. And 450,000 veterans' claims were handled by local Red Cross chapters during the same period. So give generously to your American Red Cross for its wide and diversified program of service to humanity. Now, back to the shadows. search for the horrible ghost in a haunted theater, Lamont Cranston and Margot Lane have become separated on the huge, dark stage. Thinking the figure in the dark beside her was Lamont, Margot has taken its hand when she discovers it is the ghost of the dead actor they'd come to find. Let me go. Let me go. Let go of my hand. Margot, Let go. Margot, darling. Let... Darling, it's Lamont. Oh. Oh, Lamont, No. No, I felt the cold, dead hand. It was the ghost. I know it Whatever was the ghost. Whatever it was that held you, it, I must have frightened it away. Oh. Oh, darling. I'm sorry. I... Why, I'm home, aren't I? I? I must have fainted. You did, darling, and I brought you home oh. with Pop's help. Well, what happened to you? Your clothes were all torn. Something dropped me through a trap door on that stage. Oh. Lucky I found my way out of that cell and up through the orchestra pit. There are ghosts there, aren't there? There is something horrible in that theater. Yes, Margot. Something horrible, but not ghosts. I'm sure of that now. No ghost would have to resort to such earthly tactics as dropping me through a trap door to get me out of the way. Well, who then, Lamont? Who could it be? I don't know, Margot. I suddenly thought of someone who might help me out. Who? The only living person who saw Gaylord Johnson before he disappeared. Billy, the young stage manager who went to his dressing room to call him that night. But his memory's gone. I might be able to get through to him to help him, Margot. He's going to hear the voice of the shadow when I visit him tonight. Billy, are you sleeping or is it only your mind that sleeps tonight? Voice. Is it a voice? You hear me, Billy? I am your friend. Friend? Yes, Billy. Try to remember. It's curtain time for the third act. Curtain time? Time for the third act, Billy. Call the actors on stage. Call the actors? Call them, Billy. Places, everyone. Places? Places, everyone. Now call the star, Billy. Call Mr. Johnson. No. No. Hurry, Billy. Call Gaylord Johnson. The curtain's up. Up? The curtain's up? Hurry, there's not much time now. He's in his dressing room. Yes. Mr. Johnson. 
In his dressing room. The door's closed, Billy. Mr. Johnson, third act. Places, please. That's it, Billy. Curtain's going up. Try the door, Billy. Maybe something's wrong. The door wasn't locked. And open it quickly. No, no. Open the door, Billy, quickly. The curtain's up. Yes, yes, open the door. There's Mr. Johnson in his dressing table in his robe. He's turning, he's turning now. Yes, turning to me. All right, Billy, what did you see? I saw him. He got up and came toward me. I saw his awful bleeding face. And, and then he, and then he... Then he dropped dead at your feet? He fell. I thought he was dead. But you don't know for certain? No. No, I was scared and ran out for help. I don't know whether he was dead or not. You do remember, Billy. The shadow has awakened your mind. The shadow? The shadow? Who are you? I'm your friend, Billy. Yes, my friend. A voice in the moonlight. Shadow, you've helped me. You helped the shadow too, Billy. Go back to sleep now. In the morning, you will remember. The shadow will discover the secret of the ghost without a face. I don't care what Billy told you, Lamont. Even if Taylor Johnson is alive, just the sight of it, Billy, gives me chills. I'm sure we're on the right track this time, Margot. Here's the stage door. Who is there? Is that you, Mr. Ames? No, Pops. It's Mr. Cranston, Miss Lane again. Uh, no, no. Not tonight. I can't let you go in this place tonight. Why, Pops? Well, I'm going. I'm leaving here. I can't stand this job anymore. What happened, Pops? It's that voice. It's the ghost again. Stronger and stronger each night. Tonight, I nearly followed. Now, Pops, buck up. You'll be able to keep your job. I think we can put the finishing touch on your ghost tonight. You just watch the door. If I need you, I'll call. Come on, Margo. Hang on to me this time. Give me the flashlight, Doc. Here you are. Are we going back to that dressing room again? No. Might as well look around here for a moment on stage. Oh, what a dark, ghastly place this is. And it's so big. Look, shine the light up there, Lamont. And just look how high that ceiling is. Mm-hmm. And way up there, there's, there's a little wooden balcony running all the way around. See it? It's a catwalk, Margot. The stagehands hang the sets from there, I guess. Oh. Well, come on, darling. Lamont, that heavy sandbag. Mm-hmm. Right up above us. It's swinging. It's falling. Look out, look out. Lamont! Darling, you all right? Oh, oh yes, I... I guess so. Blessing, you were looking up. Yes, a moment later, and we'd have. Lamont, you know that something is trying to kill us. Yes. I think our ghost is desperate now. Looks like it's going to be a fight to the end. Come! Come! Follow me! Again. Where is it coming from? It sounds like we're coming from Johnson's dressing room down that hallway. Yes. Yes. I come when you call. Look, it's Pops. They're across the stage. I come. I hear the ghost voice now. See that thing into the little kitchen pops. Pops going into the dressing room, Margot. The door's closing. Come on, Margot, quickly. 
Door's locked again. I'll help him. Hurry. Here it goes, Margot. Keep back. Pops. He's fallen. Pops. Pops, are you all right? He disappeared through that door. Out the door to the stage. Get him. Get him quick. Stay here with Pops, Margot. I've got to get our ghost this time. Right, right. I'll, I'll help you, Pops. Just put your eyes on me and let me get you. But not the couch. All right, back in a minute. Why, Pops? You can stand alone. Wait. Wait, don't cut. What? I'll take your hands and my throat. Come on, we've been free. Pops, what are you... Pops! Stop, come back here. Lamont! There he goes. There he goes, Lamont, up that fire escape to the catwalk. Good. I got him trapped this time. The shadow will bring that coach down to earth. They'll never get me. They'll never find me up here. Someone coming up the fire escape. Put down that revolver. You cannot escape the shadow. I, I can't see anyone, but I hear him coming up. Up, up on the catwalk with me. Yes, Pops. Up on the catwalk. The shadow comes closer to you. Where, where are you? Who are you? Closer and closer. The shadow comes to you. It's a ghost. Another ghost. You won't get me. I'll find you and kill you. <laughs> You'll never find the shadow. I will. If you're up here, I'll find you. Come take that gun. Something's grabbed hold of me. Oh, it's a ghost. Stop it. Let me go. Drop that gun. Now you're getting down off this catwalk. I don't know what you are, but if I find you, I'll throw you over that rail. Come back here, you fool. Come back. That rail's breaking. If I find you, I'll kill you. Get away from that rail. It's breaking. Look out. Gave you the idea that Gaylord Johnson didn't really die after all. Yes, Margot. That Johnson was still hiding in that theater. Well, how did Johnson disappear from his dressing room that night after he told Billy he'd killed himself? The door to the furnace room was right next to his. That's where he went down and changed into Pop's coveralls and beard. He'd actually had to cut his hands to leave traces of real blood. Realistic school of acting, is that it? Besides being a superb makeup artist. He disguised himself as Madame Trombetta when he heard the theater was opening again, used a heavy accent and plenty of veils, killed himself off again to frighten people away. Yes, but how did he manage so that his voice as the ghost seemed to be right in the dressing room with us that first night? Well, he was actually in the next dressing room and spoke through the ventilator, then ran out onto the stage. For goodness sake. But, but why? Why did Gaylord Johnson want to keep that theater closed? Mr. Ames told me that by the second act of Johnson's play, he knew it was a flop. He told Johnson he was going to close it that night. Ames said Johnson threatened him, seemed actually unbalanced with rage, and swore that no one else would ever star in that theater again. That's a strange, twisted ego, playing the starring role of a ghost. Yes, and what a fantastic performance. Playing the parts of Madame Trombetta, Old Pops, and the ghost. Then there weren't any murders after all, were there? No, Margot. The only life Gaylord Johnson took was his own, when he tried to kill the shadow and fell through that broken railing tonight. Thank you.
Shadow returns in just a moment. Since Pearl Harbor, over 500,000 victims of 869 domestic disasters have been given food, clothing, shelter, and medical care by your Red Cross. Yes, even in spite of war, Red Cross carried on on the home front, for disaster is no respecter of war. When tragedies occur, Red Cross disaster workers are on the scene immediately. They feed, clothe, and shelter the needy victims, give medical care to the injured, and stay at their side through the long period of rehabilitation. But your Red Cross is present not only in time of disaster, it is also with our men still overseas, our wounded in the hospitals, and our veterans who are struggling to try and readjust themselves to the problems of civilian life. The Red Cross is G.I. Joe's home away from home, and wherever he sees the sign of the Red Cross, he knows that America isn't really thousands of miles away. So give generously to your American Red Cross for its wide and diversified program of service to humanity. This story is copyrighted by Street and Smith Publications, Incorporated. The characters, names, places, and plots are fictitious. Any similarity to persons living or dead is purely coincidental. Again next week, the shadow will demonstrate that the weed of crime bears bitter fruit. Crime does not pay. The shadow knows. <laughs> Next week, same time, same station, the Mutual Network will bring you another strange and thrilling adventure in the shadows' daring battle against the forces of evil. Be sure to listen. The Shadow, the story called The Ghost Without a Face, from the late winter of 1946 and from the big broadcast over WAMU 88.5, I'm Murray Horwitz. Our Tony Knight tribute to the American theater ends with a bang now as we visit The Big Show, that spectacular last stand of the variety show on network radio, hosted by Tallulah Bankhead for two seasons starting in 1950. Broadway stars were generally much bigger national celebrities back then than they are now, and the edition of The Big Show we're about to hear boasts quite a few of them, and quite a few Tony-winning performers and shows, including Ms. Bankhead herself, as well as Uta Hagen, Paul Kelly, their play, Clifford Odets's The Country Wife, Judy Holliday, and the show's musical director, Meredith Wilson. We'll hear Tallulah Bankhead give him a hard time about his Iowa roots, but Maestro Wilson had the last laugh a few years later when his tribute to his home state, as he called it, won the Best Musical Award in addition to a few other Tonys along the way. That show was The Music Man, and not only is its revival up for a Tony Award this year, but there's a production of it opening this week at the only theater center just up the road in Maryland. One of the stars we'll hear who never did win a Tony is Monty Woolley, though a revival of his starring vehicle, Kaufman and Hart's The Man Who Came to Dinner, did get a nomination in the year 2000. The writers of The Big Show were all-stars themselves, including Selma Diamond, Goodman Ace, 
and George Foster. With comedy writers like that, there had to be a million topical references to the plus-size and maternity clothing store innovator Lane Bryant, New York Mayor Fiorello LaGuardia, dozens of show business celebrities, including Laurence Olivier and Vivian Lee. There are many more, but I'll get to them when we take a break between the first and second parts of the NBC extravaganza from February 25th, 1951, The Big Show. You are about to be entertained by some of the biggest names in show business. For the next hour and 30 minutes, this program will present in person such bright stars as... Uh, Uta Hagen. Jack Haley. Judy Holliday. Paul Kelly. Robert Merrill. Olson. And Johnson. Marty Woolley. Meredith Wilson. And my name, darlings, is Tallulah Bankhead. <laughs> National Broadcasting Company presents The Big Show. So listen, America, the curtains of America, we're going to fill your parlor full of stars. The Big Show, 90 minutes with the most scintillating personalities in the entertainment world. Brought to you this Sunday and every Sunday at this same time as the Sunday feature of NBC's All-Star Festival. And here is your hostess, the glamorous, unpredictable Tallulah Bankhead. Well, darlings, I've been waiting for this moment so I could read you this wonderful fan letter I received this week. The letter is unsigned, but I simply door, the person who sent it, because he understands what I'm up against. Now, I'll read it to you. It says, to Lula Bankhead, National Broadcasting Company, New York, gentlemen, <laughs> I didn't notice that before. <laughs> well, anyway, listen to the rest of it. Every week, the announcer on the big show says, and here she is, the glamorous and undesirable to Lula Bankhead... This read much better without my glasses. <laughs> but to continue with the letter, a quote, first they build you up as glamorous, and then they start describing you as something awful. Now, would it hurt them to say that you're young and pretty? It's radio. Nobody can see you anyway. <laughs> Isn't that sweet? <laughs> How is it? I wonder who wrote this letter. <laughs> Get her. <laughs> Judy Holiday. <laughs> Judy, darling, you wrote this letter. It was so sweet of you. I'm flattered that the star born yesterday would write me a fan letter. I love getting fan letters. No matter how busy I am with this show, you know, I always find time to read my fan mail. Well, I spend half my nights just reading my mail. <laughs> Still single, huh? <laughs> now, Judy, let's not get started on that again. Every time I see you, you start in about my getting married. Right now, I don't want to get married. What's the matter? There's a law against it? <laughs> I'm trying to tell you, darling, I, I like 
the life I lead. There's a law against that. <laughs> Look, legal holiday. Ah, oh, you sore. I can see you sore. It's nothing to me. If you want to get married, you're the one that's got to worry, not me. Or is it not I? It is not I. Well, if it's not me and not you, then who? <laughs> the fellas are certainly not going to worry about it. Honestly, sometimes you remind me of my friend Selma. Who is Selma? A girl. No fooling. None whatever. <laughs> That's her trouble. For years, Selma was bothered by everything but fellas. Uh, look, darling, let's drop Selma. Drop Selma? That was the slogan in the neighborhood, drop Selma. <laughs> It finally got so bad, she decided to go to a psychiatrist, and he cured her. Hey, you should go to a psychiatrist, too, because you've got the same trouble she has. All your problems could be summed up in one word. And what is that word? <laughs> I don't like to say it. <laughs> oh, go ahead and say it. What's the word? Well, I guess it's all right. Who could be listening? <laughs> Your whole problem is a word that starts with S and ends with X. S, X. Oh, you mean... That's right, sublimation complex. <laughs> Darling, do you expect me to spend an hour out of my life every day lying on a psychiatrist's couch? So tell him the truth. <laughs> My dear girl, he'd never believe it. <laughs> As a matter of fact, Judy, I went to a psychiatrist about, uh, well, about three years ago. Yeah, how did it work out? Well, he's just beginning to take a little uh, solid food now. Laugh, <laughs> clown, laugh. But the time is going to come when you'll need a man to take care of you, to support you. Support me? <laughs> Why, Judy, my pet, I have nothing to worry about. I have a very large annuity that is going to mature in ten years. Who won't? <laughs> Big deal, an annuity. Will an annuity get up in the middle of the night when you're hungry and there's no food in the house and it's snowing outside and go down a delicatessen and get your ham and Swiss cheese sandwich on rye toast, not too brown, with plenty of mustard? <laughs> and a bottle of beer? Do you think for one minute an annuity would do that? Your husband does that, I suppose. Well, no, but he thinks about it for one minute. <laughs> That's more than an annuity will do. Uh, Judy, you probably don't even know what an annuity is, uh, do you, dear? Vaguely. Well, an annuity is money you lay away for the future, you see. It's money you save for a rainy day. And with the annuity I've got, I've... Now, let me get this straight. I'll be taken care of on plenty of rainy days. How about the nights? <laughs> Don't worry about my nights, darling. I'll never want for an escort. I know many of an attractive male. You mean fan mail? Well, I know one thing. I'll need no husband to support me. 
I'll be financially independent. I'll be able to walk into Harry Carnegie's, the Scaparelli's, the Bernard Goodman's, and buy anything I want. Yeah, but never into Lane Bryant's. <laughs> Well, Judy, do you know what I think? I think we can stand a little music now. And here is Meredith Wilson with his big show, Officer and Chorus, in a stirring arrangement of military poker. And you beloved veterans of all the wars, some of your tunes are in here, too. Come here a moment. Yes, Miss Bankhead. Uh, Meredith. <laughs> Darling, I've been meaning to speak to you for some weeks now about those revolting, nauseating stories you tell about that remote little hamlet of yours in Mason City. Iowa? Yes, you are. <laughs> now, look, Mary, darling, I know that you're a wonderful musician and a fine composer... And I simply adore you, and a completely charming gentleman. But I would consider it a great personal favor to me if you would stop telling those boring, nostalgic vignettes. Now, I hope you will accept this in the spirit in which it is given. Venomously. (laughs) Well, sir, Miss Bankhead, (laughs) anything you say. After all, you are the boss man on this program. Oh, no, I don't mean to be nasty about it, Meredith, but, but I can prove to you how dull it would be if I told stories about my hometown. Gee, would you, Miss Bankhead? Well, sir, I remember once back in my hometown, Montgomery, Montgomery, Alabama, that is, when I was 15 years old, one day I was riding... No, I'd better not tell that one. <laughs> oh, I remember one I can tell. It was when I was ten years old. <laughs> and I was walking in the... Uh, well, when I was two years old. <laughs> well, you see, Meredith, we just have to draw the line somewhere. Mason Dixon, that is. Oh, dear, we always seem to get back to Mason again. Meredith. I guess you're just a country boy at heart, which is rather an ingenious way, ladies and gentlemen, 
to blend into distinguished stars of the theater, Ms. Uta Hagen and Mr. Paul Kelly. Ms. Hagen and Mr. Kelly are reigning favorites on Broadway this season, starring in a new hit play by Mr. Clifford Odette. So, darlings, here is Ms. Hagen and Mr. Kelly in scenes from The Country Girl. Country Girl is a story of the theater. It is the story of a once brilliant actor named Frank Elgin who gets a chance to make a comeback. It's the story of his wife, Georgie, who has tasted many a bitter moment with Frank in his journey downhill to failure, but who somehow has kept the faith and who has not forgotten that when she married into the theater, she was just a country girl. Our scene opens in a furnished room occupied by the Elgins on 8th Avenue. Frank, after seven years without work, has been given his chance to try out for the lead in a new play. As always, when a decision needs to be made, he turns to Georgie. I can't do it, can I? Doesn't it seem strange for you to ask me that? You're my wife. Frank, we've been through this before. Many times before, I'm tired, Frank. What happened? Where did I get so mixed up? I was the best young leading man in the business, not a slouch. The scripts didn't come. Oh, I knew it then. Out on the coast, I lost my nerve. And then when we lost the money in 39, and after those lousy federal theater jobs, this is the face that once turned down radio. Whatever happened, I don't know what. But I'm good. I'm still good, baby, because I see what they think is good. Don't you think I'm good? I think I'm good. Then take the part. Make it your own responsibility, not mine. Take the part. Don't wiggle and caper, Frank. Can't you admit to yourself you're a failure? You die to save your face, not to fail in public. But I'm your wife. You have no face. Try to be clear about this offer. Think. I didn't hear him say he'd star me. I have a message for you, Frank. Take the part. Yes, but what will you Just do Just leave if... me out. Take the part and do your level best. Well, what about that two weeks clause? You All yourself... All I tried to do was get a better deal. You won't get perfect terms. You sure gave him a scrap. Georgie. I'll tell you, that two weeks clause. They can give me notice any time, but I can give them notice too. They can let me out, but I can walk out any time I want to. If I feel I'm breaking my neck... You can quit? Yeah, that's sort of what I mean. You see, get it? Yes. Why, with this two weeks clause? I don't even have to come into New York, do I? Nope. Well, say, what's wrong with that? That's it. Two can play the same game. Wait a minute, wait a minute. I almost forgot. A quarter of seven this morning, I had a dream. I laughed so hard, it woke me up. A dream? A big banner. Now, get this. A big banner was stretched across the street. Frank Elgin in. I couldn't make out. In what? Melaguardia was in the dream? Lots of people feeling good. That's a sign. 
I'm going to take that part, Georgie. Now, you don't have to tell me not to drink. Haven't I been a good boy all summer? Early this morning, I got a, that funny, laughing dream. And I was thinking of our lives, everything. And now, this chance. I won't fail, Georgie. All those people in that dream, they wish me luck. And that's what counts if the world is with you and your wife. I don't have any appointments all winter. That's what counts. I can't fail this time. I feel like Jack a million. I'll let Dad know. I'll go up to the office in person. But my first stop was the barbershop. I want the tonsorial works. Anything you want me to bring you back? No. Then here's a kiss for you, dear. Catch that. Oh, dear God. Dear God. The players opened in Boston. The notices... A fair. New York seems a certainty, but there are plenty of rough spots in script, and performance needs work. They've been rehearsing all night, and it's almost two in the morning, and Frank is changing in his dressing room as Georgie knits. It's cold, depressing, and there's plenty of tension, and nerves are beginning to frazzle. Give me two more minutes, dear. I'm almost dressed. Frank? Yes? Where's the other bottle? What other bottle? I'm tired, Frank. Don't play peekaboo. Have you got another bottle of that cough syrup? No, I don't. All right. Give it to me. But I didn't buy another bottle, dear. I wish you'd believe me once in a while. What a night. What a night. All the time there's been a clanging in my head. I don't know who's punishing who anymore. I wish you'd take my word for something for a change. All right, never mind. I give up. I won't look. Now, where's my knitting? Georgie, I... I want to apologize. That director had no right to take that attitude. He has the right to take any attitude. He's the only friend you've had in ten years. Excepting you, dear. And that's what I want, dear. The chance to show you how much I love you. How him. much you need me, you mean? Now, please, Georgie, don't be mad at me. I know I'm no darn good, but I'm worried to you death. You tell that to the director. Think of what it means to me to walk out on that stage every night. The whole responsibility of the show is on my shoulders. Tell that to the director. Baby, I'm ashamed. I don't know where to hide. I don't know the old line. Tomorrow I get a big new scene. Now you say you're going back to New York. I can't do this if you don't help me. I didn't ask for this part. Didn't he come to me? Weren't you there? They don't appreciate... Stop putting on a front. Who's putting on a front? You're putting on a front, and you lie. You lie. What do you want me to do? Whine and complain? Do you want me to make them hate oh, me? Oh, they'll adore you when you go off on a bender. Who says on a bender? Old Waffle Iron says the mop behind the door. And this is how it ends. That laughing dream. You had a laughing dream. Five weeks ago. I don't know anyone up here in Boston. Are you going back to New York? I don't see why not. You want to leave me, don't it's you? It's late, Frank. You do, don't I you? I want to go to bed. I may have a happy dream. Who's in New York? What pair of pants are you looking now, Frank, for? Frank, I warn you, I'm going to hit you with the first thing I lay my hands on. Oh, company. None of them like me. Not even Bernie. Or the director. How do I know he's going to keep me on? Did he act like a friend tonight? They all want me to fail. You want me to fail. You don't Come love on, me. Come on, Frank. All I've got is my two hands. Well, use them. It's after 2 a.m. You have a 1 o'clock call. If you're in such a hurry, there's the door. 
I, as a matter of fact, may take myself a walk, get myself a big apple and some milk. Your cold is getting worse. Let them worry about it, and I told you what you can do. Oh, you want me to go? Is that what you want? If you're in such a hurry. Oh, the devil with it. Just the devil with it. I'm going back to the hotel. You do what you want. Sometimes I think you're playing out of your head. Playing out of your head. Do what you want. Your cold's getting worse. That's right. Walk out of me. Forget I'm alive. It's typical. Typical. Help me. Sweetheart. I wonder where that other bottle is. Sweetheart. Help me. Country girl. Paul Kelly, I must tell you how much I enjoyed you just now. You're really both truly wonderful, and I mean it. And at the theater, when I saw you, the opening night... Thank you, Tallulah. You're very kind. Oh, darlings, will I ever forget that night that you two opened Country Girl. What a brilliant affair that turned out to be. I was so happy for both of you. I was wearing my new black dress and my pearls. Oh, of course, not my real pearls, you understand. My real ones in the vault. <laughs> So are these, dear. Uh, and the insurance, you know, they are these days. It's just ridiculous. But I did have the dress made for that opening, the dress particularly made because I wanted so much for Clifford O'Dress to have another hit on his hands. I appeared in a Clifford O'Dress uh, play, you know, that he wrote some years ago called Clash by Night with Joseph Shilkrat. Uh, Joseph, you know, was in that wonderful play, The Green Bay Tree, which just closed. That's the same play. <laughs> And no, truly, it's the same play that opened 15 years ago with Laurence Olivier. And I needn't tell you how wonderful I think Larry is. Of course, why they should have brought over his wife, Vivian Lee, from England to play Scarlett O'Hara when I was around all the time <laughs> is something I will never understand. Because who could have played Scarlett O'Hara better than this little Alabama country girl? <laughs> Oh, by the way, if it's the play I started to tell you that you were so wonderful in, darling. <laughs> she sure went a roundabout way to get to that, didn't she, Paul? Well, you don't think they pay you on this program just for acting. Well, let's go then. Oh, I'm just waiting around for my money. Oh, I had very good seats for your opening. You know, I was sitting in the very first row. Did you see me? Yes, uh, we heard you very well. Uh, well, darlings, the whole audience was discussing the play because it presents such a provocative problem. I mean, the story of a famous actor who tried to make a comeback in the theater, and when he found that he couldn't, he took the drink. Isn't that it, Paul? Uh, something like that. Some actors, when they find their failures in the theater, take to drink. Others take to radio. <laughs> yes. Yes, well, now, Uta, in The Country Girl, you play the part of a wife who's uh, uh, stuck by her man for ten years while he's been drinking, and then when he gets his chance for comeback, he doesn't take advantage of it. It seems to me that from a psychological standpoint, I wouldn't put up with my husband drinking for ten years. I'd walk right out and leave him. Look who's talking about leaving her husband. <laughs> Judy, I wish you'd stay out of this. 
Excuse me, but first you gotta find a husband before you can leave him. This happens to be a play with psychiatric undertone. You wouldn't understand. I wouldn't understand. I know all about psychiatric. Who told you? Freud, that's who. Freud? How do you know about Freud? Everybody knows about Freud. These days, everybody's nervous. <laughs> you gotta be a little crazy, otherwise you go nuts. I still stick to my story. If a woman has stood by her husband who's been drinking for ten years and ruining her life, she has a perfect right to walk out on him. I think Uta should have walked out on Paul. Who? Uta and Paul. That's what we were talking about. Oh, my dear, haven't you met Uta Hagen? Surely you've heard of this great actress in the theater. Oh, you, Ty Hagen. <laughs> How you do? Tallulah talks kind of peculiar. <laughs> I didn't understand your name. Sure, I know the name of you, Ty Hagen, as well as I know Tennessee Williams. Oh, I didn't know you and Paul were married. How long has he been drinking? <laughs> Judy, Judy, they're in a play. Paul drinks in a play. The drinking we're talking about is hypothetical. That's the worst kind. <laughs> it's in the play, Judy, that Paul portrays a husband who drinks, and Uta is the wife who continues to live with him. But why shouldn't she? But you wouldn't understand that. You're not married. <laughs> you know, Paul, she has a point there. Yes, and it looks nice on her. No, I mean Judy has a logical argument. Well, yes, a person who's not married would find it difficult to understand the problems involved between a husband and wife. That's right. Hey, Paul, you're not as drunk as they say you are. <laughs> How would Tallulah know if she'd leave her husband? She's a single girl. Oh, nonsense, Judy. There are certain things you feel... I don't have to sit on a hot stove to know that it'll burn me. So if you want to sit on a hot stove, sit. There's no skin off my nose. comes the springtime, played by Meredith Wilson and the Big Show Orchestra. We'll be back in a moment with Judy and Uta and Paul and our other stars, Jack Haley, Olsen and Johnson, Monty Woolley and Robert Merrill. Now it's time for me to ring my chimes. 
This, darlings, is NBC, the national broadcasting company. Part one of our two-part listen to The Big Show from The Big Broadcast. The last hour of the show is coming up. I'm Murray Horwitz. Jill Arald Bailey is our co-producer. Mike Kidd, Kennedy Wright, and Kenny Pirog are our audio engineers. And this is WAMU Washington, your listener-supported NPR news station from American University. In HD at 88.5, on your smart speaker, and at WAMU.org. Now for the second part of The Big Show from February of 1951 with mentions of even more show business stars, including Helen Hayes, Catherine Hepburn, Lynn Fontaine, B. Lilly, Catherine Kit Cornell, and just about every celebrity with an Irish name. The U.S. Mint's gold storage at Fort Knox, the Yiddish pronunciation of the Hebrew word for family, Mishbocha, the operatic and popular song singer, James Melton, NBC News commentator H.V. Kaltenborn, the aftershave club advertisements for Aqua Velva Lotion, you can see one on our social media, the old vaudeville act Clayton Jackson and Durante, guest star Monty Woolley's full beard, and the equally bearded cowboy star Gabby Hayes, the Hamaker Schlemmer stores, the British politician Anthony Eden and the New York City one Grover Whalen, the venture capitalist and Broadway investor Jock Whitney, and White Castle Hamburgers. And we'll hear a couple of extraordinary performances, an aria from the then-young baritone Robert Merrill and the vaudevillians Olson and Johnson. They're remarkable because their comedy is so old-fashioned as to be, well, I find it corny. In fairness, they were best known for their zany, over-the-top physical comedy replete with putatively funny props. Once again, from NBC, here's the glamorous and unpredictable Tallulah Bankhead's The Big Show. The Big Show. This is the National Broadcasting Company, Stanley Extravaganza, with the most scintillating personalities in show business. The Big Show, the Sunday night feature of NBC's All-Star Festival, is brought to you by Chesterfield, the cigarette that has, for you, mildness with no unpleasant aftertaste, the cigarette that brings you Bing Crosby and Bob Hope, and by the makers of Anacin, for fast relief from the pain of headache, neuritis, and neuralgia, and by RCA Victor, world leader in radio, first in recorded music, first in television. The big stars on this program are Uta Hagen, Jack Haley, Judy Holliday, Paul Kelly, Robert Merrill, Olson and Johnson, Monty Woolley, Meredith Wilson and his big show orchestra and chorus, and every week, your hostess, the glamorous, unpredictable Tallulah Bankhead. Glamorous and unpredictable. Why do they keep saying that? I am not unpredictable. <laughs> I can't for the life of me understand where they got the idea in the first place. I mean, for instance, rehearsals is at 10 o'clock. I show up at 10 o'clock. 
How am I to know? It's at 10 o'clock in the morning, too. <laughs> and they say I'm unpredictable because I don't read the script exactly as it's written. Why, that's absolute nonsense. I read every line in the script. I even read between the lines. <laughs> unpredictable, indeed. I've been on the show for 16 weeks, and I haven't missed a single performance. Why, I even showed up one week when the audience wasn't even there. <laughs> Wasted a whole Monday. <laughs> unpredictable, my eye. But now I want you to meet a gentleman who is never unpredictable because everything he's been in has been a success. He's been in every phase of show business. Vaudeville, musical comedy, motion pictures, radio, television. So well known in New York, Hollywood, and Fort Knox, Jack Haley. Now, just a minute, Cholula. What's with that Fort Knox? Well, darling, it's no secret. Everybody in show business knows you have a lot of Jack. Jack. Yeah, and everybody knows you've got a lot of moo, Tulula. Well, I would have, darling, if the taxes weren't so high. Taxes? Oh, I got a way to beat the taxes. You have? How? I'm not going to pay him. I'll just go to prison for ten years. Oh, what a darling idea. I wish I'd thought of that. I could have saved so much money. You pay a lot of taxes, Tallulah? Oh, it's just awful. I mean, I'm still paying for 1947. <laughs> that was the biggest year I ever had, and my income tax alone came to $560,000. $560,000? You made all that money in one year? Oh, I didn't make anything that year, darling. I couldn't get a play or anything. I laid off the whole year, but a bunch of us girls were sitting around the stock club making out our income taxes, and Helen Hayes, and... Katie Hepburn and Lynn Fontaine, and when I saw the salaries they were filling in, well, I wasn't going to let them top me. <laughs> when I put down $1,700,050, I wish you could have seen their faces. <laughs> of course, it'll take me 20 years to pay the taxes. <laughs> Certainly worth it just to see their faces. <laughs> well, that's one way to beat them, but my way is cheaper. Still, you know what they say, Tallulah, money isn't everything. Who says that? <laughs> People with money. Well, yes, Jack, I suppose you're right. I think health is more important than money. Oh, by the way, darling, I, I did read in the papers last week that you'd been ill. Yeah, that's right. I hadn't been feeling very well for about six weeks. It oh. had me worried. Oh. I stayed up until 5 o'clock every morning trying to figure out what was wrong with me. And I finally figured it out. What was it? I wasn't getting enough sleep. <laughs> well, you feel better now, Jack. Oh. I mean, uh, did, you, did you see a doctor? Sure, the doctor examined me. Well, what did he find? $500. He told me I have to drink a lot of water every day. Water? I got <laughs> But I'm looking forward to a vacation this summer after I get through with my television series for the Ford Dealers. And I think I'll go out to California. I've got a little house out there on the beach. Ah, oh, that sounds divine. <laughs> well, last summer it wasn't so divine. I was walking on the beach one day and a lobster bit one of my toes. Oh, really? Which one? I don't know. All those lobsters look alike to me. I <laughs> oh, I love the beach, Jack. Uh, we were out to Hollywood uh, just three weeks ago uh, with the show, you know, and it was warm enough to go to the beach every day. I created a sort of, uh, well, mild sensation... 
There, with my three-piece bathing suit. Three-piece bathing suit? What's the third piece? Oh, that's the big piece. <laughs> the label. <laughs> you know what would be a wonderful, relaxing thing for you to do, Jack? Take an ocean voyage to Europe. I mean, you can visit France or Italy. And, oh, how about Ireland? You're Irish, aren't you? Well, you must have lots of friends in Ireland. Well, my friends used to be there, but now it's all changed. I'll tell you about it. I don't have to go to Ireland. I'll visit there no more. Tis sad, but I'm not lonesome for the sight of Erin's shore. For all my Irish playmates, all of my friends so good, have gone and got them settled in a place called Hollywood. I shook hands with Barry Fitzgerald and also Frank McHugh, had lunch with Vic McLaglen and Jimmy Cagney, too. When I got to the depot, I never heard such din as the cries from all the Colleens when they saw Errol Flynn. I visited Pat O'Brien, stopped over to Gordon McRae, had a nip with William Gargan and one with Michael Shea. At night there was a party, and I was glad I went, because I met the whole Mishbooker at the home of Georgie Brent. There was Margaret O'Brien, Virginia O'Brien, and Edmund O'Brien with tall Robert Ryan and Leo McCary and Stephen McNally all gathered there for this gala affair. There was Rory Galoni with young Mickey Rooney, Roddy McDowell with Alan O'Paul, Freddie McMurray who left in a hurry to meet Dennis Morgan who couldn't be there. George Murphy came in with the great big shillelagh, said was a gift from that dancing Dan Daly. Then Dennis O'Keefe made a speech to his brief. He said, here comes the floor, show to brighten the place. There were songs by McCanter and jokes by O'Benny and toasts from McJessel, who comes from Kilkenny. The show had a topper, twas head of a hopper, who wore a new hat made of shamrocks and lace. Oh, Sullivan and O'Hara, those lovely two Marines, Marie and Jeanette McDonald, two other sweet Colleens, Phil Regan and Morton Downey, joined voices in a song. And everyone was dancing, even Cassidy hopped along. <laughs> so now you know the reason I don't miss the Blarney Stone. For with all those Irish movie stars, I'll never be alone. Oh, God bless you and keep you, Joel McRae. I was talking a little while ago about being unpredictable, and now I want you to meet a couple of gentlemen who really are unpredictable. If you've ever seen them in a theater in Hell's a Poppin' and Sons of Fun and some of their other great hits, you'd know what unpredictable means. I refer, of course, to Olsen and Johnson, Olin Chick. <laughs> How unpredictable can you get? Come on, fellas, up to the microphone. We don't want to. <laughs> what do you mean you don't want to? You're not going to sit there all through the show and read a script. 
You've got to stand up if you want to give a performance. Put your all into it. Do what? <laughs> uh, put your all into it. We've got our all into it when we sat down. <laughs> hey, Archek, what are you saying? That's no way to talk on this show. Why don't you tell her why, why we're sitting here? I guess I'd better do it. You see, Miss Bankhead? I see, Miss Bankhead. How can you miss her? <laughs> wait a minute, wait a minute. Stop that. You know, this is a high-class show. I beg your pardon? I say this is a high-class show. Yeah, I notice. Uh, I notice they don't hold the script in their bare fingers. No. <laughs> they use a fork and a knife. Very funny indeed. Fork and knife. That is why we expect our guests to give a sterling performance. Sterling uh, performance, you hear that? Sterling. I don't get it. You see, Tallulah, we came here prepared to do an act. But we're, you know, we're in a kind of a jam here because, well, with the kind of an act we do, we're under kind of a handicap. And no talent, darlings. Well, we wanted to start off even with our hostess. <laughs> you know, we came here wanting to do something, but they didn't supply us with the necessary props. Oh, yes, of course, I know, Early In the theater, you're a big hit with plants growing out of flower pots, people trying to get out of straight jackets and funny-looking costumes and things... But this is radio. Your comedy is visual. You know, a, a sight. What? I said your comedy is sight. Yeah? <laughs> You're a pretty funny sight yourself. <laughs> now, Chick, that's no way to talk. Now, apologize to Miss Bankhead. Say you're sorry. I'm sorry you're a sight, Miss Bankhead. <laughs> no, Chick. A sorry sight? No. A mess. Now, wait a minute. Will you stop? Miss Bankhead, I'd better explain what my partner means. Well, if anyone can explain it, I guess you can. How long have you two been partners? Thirty-five years. Thirty-five years. Yes, how long have you two been partners? <laughs> now, look here, Costello. Hey, chick, I'm warning you. You better stop it. This isn't Milton Burrow. <laughs> you can lick him. <laughs> but you see, Miss Bankhead, in the theater... We know exactly what kind of comedy to do. Oh, I've seen your show many times, darlings. And as I say, most of the things you do are visual, not for radio. I mean, they belong in that other medium, uh, the name of which for the moment escapes me. <laughs> she kidding? Now, listen, but it's not all visual. We have a sort of a loud, raucous show with a lot of big noises. Yes, well, I'm the only big noise around here. <laughs> yeah, I know. But in the shows we've done on Broadway, we've been, you know, a big hit. We kill the audiences. How can you miss with all those guns you keep shooting off? <laughs> well, if you boys are ready to do your act, load up and I'll pass out the earplugs. No, but that's just it. They didn't give us any props. Props? Sure, we need 50 automatics, 20 Colts. A half a dozen machine guns and a dozen anti-aircraft guns for the balcony. And 13 weeks of basic training, no doubt. Wait a minute. What do you mean? Let's do the bit we did in Peoria with June and Chicky and all. Wait, wait a minute. We can't do that here. Sure we can. Nah, it's so messy. She won't stand for it. Sure she will. I tell you, no. Now, look, boys. Suppose you let me decide. What is it you want to do? Oh, it's something from an old act of ours. Chick used to sing a song. Yes, with the right side of my mouth, I sang, Life is just a bowl of cherries. And with the left side of my mouth, I used to sing, In the shade of the old apple tree. 
And the middle of your mouth just stands there and does nothing, I suppose. <laughs> With the middle of my mouth, I spit out the pits. <laughs> Uh, look, uh, a snake pits. I'm sure that must be a nourishing and fluid display of talent, but this is the big show. Okay, I'll do it with watermelons. <laughs> now, Chick, will you drop that idea? We'll think of something else, Tallulah. Not so uh, incongruous to the decorum and dignity of this talented melange, which is foregathered here on this podium. That's what I said. With the middle of my mouth, I spit out the pit. <laughs> okay, apple knocker, simmer down. Uh, do you mind if I go on with the rest of the show, darling? No, no, that's all right. Oh, thank you. You're so sweet. And now, ladies and gentlemen, I would like to present... Hey, Chick, you know she's, she's pretty nice? Oh, yes. She's a good skate. Well, why shouldn't she be? They used to have a nice show here. <laughs> And now, ladies and gentlemen, I would like to present... She must be one of the figure eights that was left over. Yeah. <laughs> she looks like she made the eight the hard way. <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, I would like to present two fours. I mean, I would like... Uh, uh, would you two gentlemen try to keep quiet? I'm trying to announce an next act. Oh, I'm sorry, Tallulah. You don't worry us. Go right ahead. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, I would like now to present a young man whose magnificent voice is currently thrilling Metropolitan Opera Goers. A man who graciously consented to rejoin us two weeks earlier than he planned because of the illness of Mr. James Melton. We are honored to have Mr. Robert Merrill back on the big show tonight. Will you stop a chick? How do I know how much money she makes? <laughs> Quiet, you two! Uh, ladies and gentlemen, here he is, Mr. Robert Merrill. Bob, darling, I'm so glad you were able to be with us this week. You're very kind, Tallulah. Uh, you know, I sang in your hometown a few weeks ago in Montgomery, Alabama. Oh, that's right. You did sing there, I remember, because I wrote some of my uh, schoolmates and told them you'd be there. Yes, uh, I know. I met them all. They're the nicest little old ladies. <laughs> old ladies? You must have met the mothers of my schoolmates. Oh, no. These little old ladies were the children of your school. <laughs> That's an insult. It's too involved for me to figure out. But what did you sing for them, Robert? Well, the song they requested was Di Provenza. Di Provenza. Oh, I'd give anything to have heard it. Uh, do you want me to sing it now? Would you, darling? Would you sing it for me? I'd be glad to. Oh, good. Ladies and gentlemen, Robert Miller singing Di Provenza from La Trivia. Oh, for goodness Triviata. sake, Oli, wait a minute. How do I know what picture it's from? I think it's from Confessions of the Nazi Spy. <laughs> Quiet, Robert. Sing, you two. Di Parenzo. Brasile, Brasile, Brasile. Di Parenzo. Quiet, You sing, Robert. Don't mind them. Termites, you know. <laughs> Deep Provence. 
senza il mar il suol, i dal corti cancello, i dal corti cancello, di Provenza e mar il suol, alla tia fulgente sol, al destino ti furo, al destino ti furo, al nottio fulgente sol, ora mento pur nel duol, vivi gioia che brillò, e che pace passò, What a great voice. And what heart you put into your singing. 
I could stand here and listen to you all night. Do, do you want me to sing another one? Over my dead body. <laughs> After all, darling, I'm on this show, too. But tell me, Robert, I understand you now have a new hobby. You collect uh, antique automobiles, don't you? Oh, yes. Jimmy Melton started me on this. I now have 40 antique models. Oh, I love old cars. What a long way automobiles have come since those early models. Hey, Tallulah. Yes, Judy, darling, what is it? Oh, Bob, you know Judy Holliday. How do you do? How you do? Hey, Tallulah, can I speak to you a minute privately? Why, certainly. Excuse me. Uh, just a moment, will you, Bob? What is it, Judy? What, what is it? What are you talking to him about old cars? Judy, you don't understand, darling. Robert Merrill collects antique models. So put in a plug for yourself. <laughs> I think that was mean of you, and that's an ad lib. <laughs> Look, Judy, this is Bob's hobby, old cars. So who is he, Madman Merrill? <laughs> Make up your mind. What do you want, an old car or a used husband? Oh, Judy, 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 let's get off that subject. I happen to be interested in cars. I like driving. Why don't you show a little more interest in parking? <laughs> After all, what's romantic about old cars? If you talk to him about singing... Well, I did talk to him about singing. What do you want me to do? Sing something to him? Why not? You know a beautiful love song? Well, I know... Uh, Give my regards to Broadway. <laughs> Give my regards to... What are you trying to marry, a fella or an orange juice stand? <laughs> Why don't you sing a song like those smart supper club chanteuses sing? <laughs> the kind that sings with the beautiful soft music and then breaks all the people's hearts telling how she got did. Judy, uh, uh, darling, uh, what do you mean? I'll demonstrate. Thank you. over a bowling ball. <laughs> a 
And all the games you won for me, I let you win, Marvin. And it wasn't easy. You were such a lousy bowler, Marvin. And dancing. How you used to love to dance. The minute we get into the house, you rush over, you turn on the radio, and there we were, Marvin, in each other's arms, dancing to H.V. Cowtonborn. <laughs> The first time you proposed to me And the second time When you proposed marriage (laughs) You said You said Say the word that will make me The happiest man in the world And I said Yes And you said That's not the word (laughs) And I said in my heart? And you said, left ventricle, right ventricle, left oracle, right oracle. That's when I took the hint, Marvin. You didn't want a wife, you wanted a surgeon. (laughs) I can't make you open your heart, but I can dream. Can I? Ladies and gentlemen, what more need I say? Mr. Marty Woolley. What sort of an introduction was that? Need you say more? You you certainly need say more. And you will say it exactly as I wrote it for you this morning in my fine Spencerian hand. Uh, Woolly, I warn you, I will not tolerate any of your tempestuous outbursts. My dear woman, I have been sitting here for more than an hour trying not to listen to this array of minor buffoons (laughs) you have somehow managed to assemble here, including the antics of Olsen, Jackson, and Durante, (laughs) and that used car salesman whose hobby is a monstrous caterwauling which he calls singing, and that Hibernian gentleman who brought over his relatives from Ireland and set them up in Hollywood in shanties with swimming pools to say nothing of the whining mewlings of that infantile blonde, Judith Holliday. <laughs> and now you dare dismiss me with a one-line introduction. Uh, Marty, darling, I won't lose my temper because you've lost yours. But you see, this is radio. Every moment counts. Are you going to presume to tell me about radio? I have a radio program of my own. Really, darling? I didn't know. What sort of program is it? Thirty minutes of sparkling adult comedy every week. (laughs) Thirty minutes? (laughs) Why, darling, my program is 90 minutes. (laughs) So I understand. But if you gathered up a few of your dangling participles and mended a few of your split infinitives, you could do this program in 30 minutes. And if you confined yourself to using the single negative instead of the double negative, you could cut this program down to 15 minutes, which in itself is twice as much Tallulah as anyone should be asked to bear. Now, just a minute, Buster. Relax. Loosen your beard. 
wondering how long it would be before you resorted to that. Obviously, you would use a barb like that. Obviously, you could use a barber. <laughs> uh, my problems are tonsorial. Yours are tonsillectomy. <laughs> oh, my dear, you're so grotesque. <laughs> I was just trying to imagine you as a member of that aftershave club. <laughs> well, I was nominated for membership, but I declined when I heard that you were a member. <laughs> Why, you pale imitation of Gabby Hayes? <laughs> Gabby Hayes? You dare compare an artist of my study to, with Gabby Hayes? Gabby Hayes is every inch the actor you are, and he rides a horse besides. <laughs> Tallulah, if you are not familiar with accepted rules of etiquette on how to treat a guest, you can at least have a little respect for age. <laughs> oh, Marcy. That's the nicest, sweetest thing that's been said to me on this program. <laughs> I mean your age. Now, take it easy, Marty. I remember you when you were only a moustache. Comparing me to Gabby Hayes, you forget, woman, that I've seen you in the theatre. And? Well, I suppose you are an actress of sorts. Of sorts? A stylist, perhaps? Stylist? May I remind you that I'm renowned for my dramatic perception, my comedy timing. Critics everywhere have agreed that my timing is second to none. Yes, the timing of the shrew. <laughs> well, this from a man whose only claim to fame is that he is known as the male Tallulah Bankhead. Well, that's funny. I always thought you were. <laughs> Oh, darling, you kill me. Uh, it'll be a pleasure. Oli, Oli, why do you keep saying he's not her father? I told you, Chick, nobody can be that old and still be alive. What makes you think he's alive, darlings? Uh, well, well, whom have we here? Hammaker and Schlemmer? <laughs> Excuse me, Marty. Excuse me. Uh, these are Olson and Johnson, who have been sitting here trying to think of an act they can do. Have you thought of anything yet, boys? No, have you? What do you mean? Well, I notice you don't have an act either. All you've done is stand up there and insult that nice, gray-haired old gentleman. And the funny part of it, he doesn't have an act either. <laughs> <laughs> I laugh. Lula, I'll be in my dressing room shaving. If I'm fortunate, I may cut my throat from ear to ear. Oh, Marty, stop losing your head, darling. <laughs> now, look here, Olsen, and you too, Johnson. I do have an act. And if Monty will join me, we can do a scene from one of his greatest Broadway and Hollywood successes, George Kaufman and Moss Hart's The Man Who Came for Dinner. Monty, will you join me, darling? Would that my contract permitted me to say no. Well, what's the scene about, Tallulah? Well, if you remember, the man who came to dinner is the story of Sheridan Whiteside, the noted writer and lecturer, who breaks his leg as he is about to leave the home of his dinner host and is confined to their home for several hilarious weeks. As part of the plot, he calls upon an actress friend of his in London, Lorraine Sheldon, to come to his aid. 
Lorraine is beautiful, chic, worldly, sophisticated, glamorous. And unpredictable. <laughs> Which part do you play, Tula? <laughs> she refuses to answer on the grounds that it might incriminate her. Now, come on, Tallulah, enough of this asinine mummery. If we're going to do this bit, let's get it over. This will show you whether I can act or not. I will answer all of you with my talents as an actress and my magnetic personality. Ye gods, double jeopardy. <laughs> Meredith, darling, some man who came to dinner music, if you please, sir. Lorraine enters the presence of the great Sheridan Whiteside. Oh, Sheridan, darling, look at that poor, sweet, tortured face. Ah, oh, let me kiss it, you poor darling. Your eyes have a gallant compassion. How drawn you are. Oh, Sherry, my sweet, I want to cry. All right, you've made a very nice entrance, my dear. Now relax. No, but Sherry, darling, I've been so worried in now seeing you in that chair. This chair fits my fanny as nothing else ever has. <laughs> I feel better than I have in years, and my only concern is to use the outside world. So take off that skunk, dear, and tell me all about it. How are you, my dear? Oh, darling, I'm so relieved. You look perfectly wonderful. I never saw you look better. Oh, my dear, do I look a wreck? I just dashed through New York. Didn't do a thing about Christmas. Dropped into furries, of course, and then had my hair done. Got right on the train. And the Queen Mary coming back was simply hectic. Fun, you know, but simply exhausting. I mean, Jock Whitney and Cary Grant and Dorothy Frasso. Fun, you know, but too exhausting, darling. Of course, London before that was so magnificent, my dear. But I simply never got to bed at all. Oh, darling, I have so much to tell you that I don't know where to start. We'll start with the dirt first, dear. That's what I want to hear. <laughs> well, now, let me see. Uh, Sybil Cartwright was thrown right out of Ciro's, you know. She was wearing one of those new cellophane dresses, you know. And Sir Harry Montrose, the painter, is suing his mother for disorderly conduct. <laughs> well, it just shocked everyone to death. Oh, and before I forget, Anthony Eden told me he's going to be on your New Year's broadcast, Sherry. And he said, for heaven's sake, not to introduce him as the English Grover Whelan. <laughs> oh, and Beatrice Lilly gave me a message for you. She says... For you to take off 25 pounds right away and send them to her by parcel post. She needs them. I'll pack them on ice. Now, come, dear, what about you? What about your love life, if you'll pardon the expression? Sherry, dear, you're so nosy. <laughs> what about that splendid bit of English mutton, Lord Bottomley? <laughs> Haven't you hooked him yet? Sherry, please. Uh, Cedric is a dear friend of mine. Now, Blossom Girl, this is Sherry. Don't try to kid me. Don't tell me you wouldn't like to be Lady Bottomley with a hundred thousand pounds a year and twelve castles. By the way, has he had his teeth fixed yet? Every time I order Roquefort cheese, I think of those teeth. 
Sherry, you really are too nauseating. Cedric may be not brilliant, but he's rather sweet, poor lamb. And he really is deeply fond of me, and he does represent a kind of English way of living that I like. I mean, Surrey and London for season, shooting bucks in Scotland, that lovely old castle in Wales. Well, you were there, Sherry. You know what I mean. I do indeed. Oh, really, Sherry, why not? I mean, if I marry uh, Cedric, I don't know why I shouldn't. Oh, shall I tell you something, Sherry? I think, I think from something he said just before I sailed that he's finally coming around to it. Oh, it wasn't definite, mind you. But don't be surprised if I am Lady Bottomley before very long. Lady Bottomley. Won't Kansas City be surprised? Oh, well, I shall be a flower girl and give the groom an iron toothpick as a wedding present. Come on now, Head. Come on, Blossom. Let's hear some more of your skullduggery. Oh, but say, what about this play after all? I've come all the way from New York, even on Christmas Eve. Oh, I've been so excited ever since your phone call. Where is it? I mean, when can I read it? Well, here's the situation. This it's... young author, his yes. name is Bert Jefferson, yes. brought me the play with the understanding that I said it to Kit Cornell. Uh-huh. It's a magnificent part, and Lord knows I feel disloyal to Kit. Oh, sure. There you are, there you are. Now, I've done this much. The rest is up to you. He's young and attractive. No, oh, oh, just how you go about persuading him, I'm sure you know more about than I do, my dear. <laughs> Darling, how can I ever thank you? Does he know I'm coming? I mean, this beautiful young man. No, 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 no. You're just out here visiting me. You'll meet him, and that's that. Get him to take you out to dinner and work around to the play. Good heavens, I don't have to tell you how to do these things. How'd you get all those other parts? Sherry, please! Well, I'll go back to the hotel, darling, and get into something uh, more attractive. I just dump my bags and rush right over here, darling. Oh, you're wonderful. All right, all right. Now run along and get into your working clothes. And come right back here and spend Christmas Eve with Sherry, and I'll have that beautiful young man on tap. Now, by the way, I've got a little surprise for you. Who do you think's paying me a flying visit tonight? None other than your old friend and co-star, Beverly Carlton. Oh, really? Beverly? I thought he was being glamorous again on a tramp steamer. Oh, come, come, dear. Mustn't be bitter just because he got better notices than you did. Oh, don't be silly, Sherry. I never read notices. I simply wouldn't care to act with him again, that's all. Well, he's not staying here, is he? I should hope not. Temper, temper, temper. No, he's not. Where'd you get that diamond clip, dear? That's a new bit of loot, isn't it? Oh, haven't you seen this before? Well, Cedric gave it to me for his mother's birthday. And she was simply furious. <laughs> oh, look, darling, uh, I've got a taxi outside. If I'm going to get back here, I must fly. Uh, well, fly away, Blossom, but don't fly too high. If you drop any of that loot you're carrying, you're apt to brain somebody. <laughs> Hey, uh, Cholula. Yes, Jack, darling, what is it? I'd like to take a crack at that uh, man who came to dinner. Oh, there he is, darling. Take a crack at him. No, I mean I'd like to act that part in the play. Well, go right ahead, Jack. Oh, would you like me to play the part opposite you? Oh, no, uh, I've got a leading lady. Oh, really? Who? Me, that's who. Oh, Judy Holiday, go right ahead, my sweet. Set the scene, Jack. Okay. As the curtain rises, we find Sheridan Haley sitting in a wheelchair with his leg in a cast. That's the original cast, of course. The door opens and his girlfriend comes to visit him. (laughs) 
doctor. Oh, it's coming along all right. How's your neck feeling? I'm sorry I broke it. Oh, it's still broken. And your nose? It's broken. I'm all broken up over you. Well, it's your own fault, Sharon. You should have kept your hands to yourself. <laughs> Didn't you hear me say stop? I thought you were talking to the taxi driver. What have you got in the package? I brought you some fruit. Have a banana. Gee, thanks. Well, what's the dirt? That's what I want to hear. Well, I just dashed up here to the Bronx from Flatbush, and the crowded somebody was simply exhausting. <laughs> All those men pushing and mauling. It's fun, you know, but exhausting. <laughs> and who should duck under the same turnstile with me but Jake Whitney? Fun, but exhausting. And next Saturday night, he's taking me to Colucci's for some ravioli. Or is it raviolis for some colucci? That sounds like it might be exhausting. But fun. Have another banana. Thanks. I don't like you running around with other fellas when I'm sitting here with a broken leg. Well, what do you expect me to do? Just because you got a broken leg, should I sit around the hot house broken? I mean, heart, heart, uh, heartbroken? <laughs> really, Sharon, you fracture me. Well, you fractured me first. Besides, we're engaged. I'm breaking the engagement. Well, you broke everything else. <laughs> Have you got another fellow? Oh, I got my choice of three. Butch Gillis, Tiger Collins, and Lord Bottomley. Lord Bottomley? Yeah, Lord Bottomley. He promised me 250 pounds the day we get married. He's holding out on you. He weighs 290. <laughs> He's a rich millionaire. All he does is sit around and clip coupons. Sure, he wants to get an encyclopedia. I don't know why you won't wait for me. We'd be very happy. We'd get married, buy a house, settle down, and have five or six children. And if that doesn't work out, we'll try something else. He sounds like fun, but exhausting. <laughs> I couldn't marry you, Sharon, because Lord Bottomley represents a flatbush way of life. A townhouse on Ocean Avenue. A summer season at Far Rockaway. The pitcher's box in Ebbets Field for the shooting. And that lovely old white castle for hamburgers. But how about me? But Sharon, you're all broken up. And parts are so hard to get these days. Yeah, well, I'm getting up and get out of, getting out of here right now. Sharon, be careful. Watch out for that banana peel. Sharon! Hey, Oli, here's a chance to do our act. There's an actor with two broken legs. Well, what are we waiting for? You fool, not me, him! Well, darlings, this just about brings us to our good night. Night, Tallulah. Oh, Bob Merrill. Thanks so much for dropping in, sweetie. You're really divine. Oh, by the way, Bob, if you're dining alone tonight, I just don't happen to have anyone that I... Uh... Oh, I'm terribly sorry, Tallulah, but I do have a previous dinner date I made about three months ago. In three months? How previous can you get? <laughs> well, good night, Bob. Uh, oh, oh, Jack, Jack Haley. Uh, good night, Tallulah. Oh, Jack, darling, it's been so nice. 
Are you having dinner anywhere particularly? I just happen to be uh, alone. No, I'm you. just going back to my hotel room and have something light. You see, I'm on a bland diet. Sorry. A blonde diet, uh, yeah. Well, good night, Jack. Good night, Tallulah. Oh, good night, Chicken. You too, Ollie. Oh, it was fun, wasn't it, fellas? Shall the three of us go out and celebrate? Well, we have a date, Tallulah. And here she is, Uta Hagen. Oh, Uta, you look charming, my sweet. I haven't seen you since you and Paul Kelly appeared in our first act. Going out with the boys now? Uh, yes. Uh, why don't you come along, Tallulah? I think with these two wild men, I'll need a chaperone. Chaperone, indeed. Good night, darling. Oh, that's Paul Kelly. Paul, if you wait a moment, I'll go along with you. I don't think you'd better, Tallulah. I'm going over to the Luxor Baths. <laughs> Good night, Paul. Go ahead, Tallulah. There's one more. I know, Judy, but oh well, what can I do? Monty Woolley. What are you doing for tonight? For dinner? Eating. <laughs> and I want to ask Judy if she'll eat with me. Come, child, your English is atrocious. Maybe I can help you. You will be my Galatea, and I will be your Pygmalion. Okay, Piggy, let's go. <laughs> well, I never knew I could empty a theater that quickly. I'm just doing great. Well, how glamorous can you be? I'll get even with them all. I won't eat in a dinner. Nobody seems to want me. Oh, Tallulah, don't say that. Oh, well, darling, my big show chorus. All the men who run the 180 NBC stations want you. They've just voted you and this program the most progressive step in radio in many a year. Really, darling? And as for us, Tallulah... What? Yeah. 
Thank you, my darlings. Well, next Sunday, we have another star-studded list of guests, including Fred Allen, Clive Brook, Portland Hoffer, Frankie Lane, Ethel Merman, Herb Schreiner, Margaret Truman, and others, and, of course, our very own Meredith Wilson and the big show orchestra and chorus. And until then... May the good Lord bless and keep you, whether near or far away. Judy? May you find that long-awaited golden day today. Paul? May your troubles all be small ones. And your future ten times ten. Chicken May the good Lord bless and keep you till we meet again. Meredith. May you walk with sunlight shining and a bluebird in every tree. Jack, may there be a silver lining back of every cloud you see. Monty, fill your dreams with sweet tomorrows. Never mind what tonight have been. Uta, may the good Lord bless and keep you. Till we meet again, Bob. May you long recall each rainbow, then you'll soon forget the rain. May the warm and tender memories be the one. That will remain Fill your dreams with sweet tomorrows Never mind what might have been May the good Lord bless and keep you Until we meet again darlings, and Godspeed to our armed forces who hear these broadcasts each week all over the world. Listen to The Big Show next Sunday at this time, when our guest will be Fred Allen. 
Clive Brook, Portland Hoffa, Frankie Lane, Ethel Merman, Herb Schreiner, Margaret Truman and others, Meredith Wilson and the Big Show Orchestra and Chorus, and of course, every week, your hostess, the glamorous, unpredictable Tallulah Bankhead. The Big Show is produced and directed by T. Engelbach and written by Goodman Ace, Selma Diamond, George Foster, Mort Green, and Frank Wilson. This is Ed Hurley, he speaking. Bill Harris, then enjoy Hedda Hopper's show on NBC. The Big Show, filled with Broadway stars in the winter of 1951. It brings us almost to the end of this Tony Knight salute to the theater on the big broadcast. We wanted to mark the centennial coming up this Friday, June 17th, of the film composer Jerry Fielding. Mr. Fielding, who left us in 1980, was an Emmy winner and multi-Oscar nominee who worked extensively in radio on such shows as You Bet Your Life, The Life of Riley, and The Fitch Bandwagon. We're going to close our show with a piece called Nocturne, appropriately enough, from his score for the 1962 film Advise and Consent. For co-producer Jill Arold Bailey and audio engineers Kennedy Wright, Kenny Pirog, and Mike Kidd, this is Murray Horwitz. Thanks for listening. Have a great week, and please join us here next Sunday. Good night, everybody. Mm-hmm.